Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So then, when we created this conversation for this week's episode of the Paracast, we use Skype as we always do. And Skype tends to be buggy, as it always is. And it calls these conversations shiny and new because, well, I don't know if our guest Kevin Randall has a shiny face or Jay Randall Murphy, my face is dark red. That's not true. It's just a Skype is buggy. We started the conversation and suddenly it's crapped out on us, which is not a nasty word. It's just a, it's just a word that we are using because of the fact that things didn't work out. Anyway, Kevin D. Randall's with us. And before we get to talking about his new book, the best of Project Blue book, let's talk about the best of something else a little bit. Now, you haven't talked to Nick Redfern yet, Kevin, as you've told us, but do you have any preliminary thoughts about the possibility that the Rendlesham Forest UFO episode may have been a government experiment and not some kind of weird phenomenon from somewhere else? I have communicated with Nick Redfern. I'm going to have him on my program uh, in about a week and have an opportunity to explore this in greater depth. But I have talked to John Burroughs. And when I had him on the program, he was talking about his belief or his theory that the um, Rendlesham Forest experiences transcended more than just the three nights in December of 1980, that it was much more involved in that. And it was his idea that there was some kind of a British research organization or facility nearby, and they may have been the cause behind the displays that were witnessed by the American airmen. So um, postulating from that, uh, I wonder if that is where Nick is going with his look at Rendlesham Forest since his book is, uh, I guess, aligned closely with uh, John Burroughs. But having talked to Jim Pettiston and, and Charles Hall, both of whom have been again on my program, they seem to be of the opinion that it's some sort of extraterrestrial craft or some sort of extraterrestrial display. So you've got two diverging opinions now based on the people who are actually there and the evidence that, uh, or their perspectives of what they saw that night. So that's my only guess is that uh, Nick is kind of reporting on what John Burroughs believes to be the truth of the Rendlesham Forest events in today's environment. Now, it's also true that Nick has found or tried to find terrestrial explanations for other key cases. He mentions, of course, Cash Landra, which happened around the same rough time frame in America. And of course, even Roswell, but what about Cash Landrum? Do you think that might have been a government experiment of some kind? The problem I have with Cash Landrum is the report of all these Chinook helicopters involved in it. And it transpired over the Christmas holidays or basically in that time frame. And an awful lot of the military goes on leave or goes home. It's the uh, people on active duty or people on duty are, is reduced significantly during that holiday period. So I'm wondering where they got all the uh, pilots and air and crewmen for all the helicopters that were supposedly involved in this display. Uh, that's kind of worrisome for me. I haven't looked at it in a great deal. I know Phil Class talked about wanting to see the medical records of Cash Landrum because they, of course, manifested some 
uh, medical problems after the encounter, and he wondered if that might be ongoing or it had been exacerbated by the close approach of this object that they witnessed. So there are things about it that are interesting, but I haven't explored those in, in great depth. Now, in the book, and you'll get to it when you read it, he also talks about the Pascagoula, Mississippi abduction as some kind of experiment and suggests that even Betty and Barney Hill might have been. Are we moving it one step too far there? I talked to a guy named um, Terry Loveless about his abduction experience. And it seemed to me that one of the possible explanations for it, since it was a one-time abduction, might have been some kind of psychological experiment conducted by the AFOSI, Air Force Office of Special Investigation, or some kind of uh, an experiment conducted under their, their watch. So we do have those kinds of stories out there. I think... I think I just don't think Barney and Betty Hill is um, any kind of an experiment conducted by the United States government or other organizations. Pascagoula, I've talked to Calvin Parker, and I, I, again, I interviewed him on my radio program about a year ago, and he seemed to be very down to earth. So he's relating to us, I believe, what he believes to be the absolute truth. Uh, whether whether or not it was some kind of government experiment, I don't know. And I, I just don't see how, given what he's talked about, what Hickson talked about, and some of the additional witnesses they have located, and I say they, uh, Philip Mantle and Calvin Parker, have located, I don't see how this could be some kind of a government experiment. It, but we also know that the government has done that. Uh, we can go back to the 1960s and their LSD experiments, uh, I guess, um, spreading LSD in uh, subways to see how people reacted to it and things like that. So we know that the government does those sorts of things on a, uh, you might say, an unsuspecting public. But these seems to be much more robust, much more comprehensive, much more hard to pull off in that kind of a guise. And it, it begins to strain credulity that they are able to do something like that without um, the evidence of that coming out. Yes, that's something that is really curious um, in a lot of cases. I mean, here we are still in 2020 looking for real evidence. I mean, you were talking about all of the helicopters that may have been involved in the Cash Landrum case. That's a really good point. And where are those pilots today? Where are all those witnesses today? You would think that after all of this time, at least two or three of them might have come forward. And say well, it's, not, it's, it's not just the air crews with Cash Landrum. It's also the support people, the logistical support, because you don't fly those helicopters without an awful lot of fuel. Um, you've got maintenance personnel. You've got other air crew members. You've got administrative personnel. You've got to have uh, all sorts of records. There's uh, all kinds of things that are necessary to move that many aircraft into that arena at that time. So uh, the fact that we don't have somebody coming out and said, yes, I was involved in this experiment is is uh, quite worrisome to suggest it is an experiment because with, with like Roswell, 
And I, I bring this up because we talked to many, many people in Roswell, and there's an awful lot of people involved in Roswell, and we were able to crack that egg because people talked to us. And yet we don't have that sort of thing with Cash Landrum. We have people coming forward from Roswell saying, yes, I was there. And we would vet the people and say, yeah, you were there. What did you see? What did you hear? And we don't have any of that with Cash Landrum. And there would have to be, I think they were talking maybe as many as 40 helicopters involved. And so you've got to figure at least 60 pilots at least 60 pilots, and then you've got crew chiefs and, and flight engineers, you've got uh, the logistical support people, the truck drivers that would be bringing the, the, the fuel in for the helicopters, you've got other maintenance that needs to be done, you've got to have quarters for all those people, where are they going to stay, how are you going to feed them, you've got all of that logistical support, and somebody involved in that would have been a short timer, might have been uh, somebody who had just doing one tour in the military, would have come forward and said, yes, I was involved in this and this is what I saw. And we just don't have any of that. And you're not just talking through your hat. I mean, let's remind listeners here that you did pilot UH-1 helicopters in the uh, United States Army. And by the way, our interview with Kevin D. Randall will not end with this episode. He's agreed to come back for this weekend's After the Paracast podcast. After the Paracast, of course, is an exclusive feature of the Paracast Plus. For more information on what you get when you subscribe, go to theparacast.plus. We are going to continue this discussion and focus dead on with the best of Project Blue Book and lots more. Kevin D. Randall joins us, and it's always a blast when he's on the show with Gene and Randall. The other Randall, you're in the Paracast. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's The Coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Find out more at rockoids.com. That's rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. This is a pandemic survival alert and the most time-sensitive messages you will hear this year. You still have time to plant a one-acre crisis garden and secure a supply of your own nutrient-dense food. But time is running out, and it's one deadline you don't want to miss. Who should plant a crisis garden? Individuals, families, churches, communities, anyone or any group that sees hard times ahead. Let's face it, even the mainline media is talking about food supply disruptions and the growing number of grocery store workers who are becoming sick. But there's more. Meat Packing plants are closing, mile-long lines at food pantries, and more farmers now in financial trouble. The truth is, growing nutrient-dense vegetables this summer may be the single most important thing you do. Go to survivalseedbank.com and watch the new video to understand what we're really up against. Get free bonus seeds, special quarantine reports, too. Don't wait. Every minute counts. Go to survivalseedbank.com. That's survivalseedbank.com.
With more people listening to radio than visit Google, Facebook, or YouTube, from the very young to the very old, everyone listens to radio. Pillow companies, alarm, identity theft, nutrition, insurance, banking, automotive, the list goes on and on. Billion-dollar businesses. Why? The answer is radio, the media everyone tunes into. Find out how effective and affordable radio can be for your business. Contact 877-996-4327 or advertise at GCNlive.com. Hand sanitizer is not an option. It's now a must-have. But beware, not all hand sanitizers are created equal. That is why you want to use 2020 Safe Hand Sanitizer. You can trust the hand sanitizer on 2020safe.net to be made with the highest quality ingredients, American-made with American ingredients, employing Americans. Log on now at 2020safe.net and order your liter bottle and receive a bonus. That's right. You'll receive a 30-count bottle of Immune Booster, a $14.95 value, free. By using code GCN at checkout, 2020safe.net offers many natural products to help support health and help you live a more fulfilled life. From germ-zapping hand sanitizer to immune-building nutraceuticals, 2020safe.net has what you need in stock today. Just click 2020safe.net. Remember to enter GCN at checkout and the bonus is yours free. Go now to 2020safe.net. Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to Earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right. We cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So we've got Randall and Randall, J. Randall Murphy, Kevin D. Randall. I'm Gene Steinberg. I'm not changing. I don't have a middle name, by the way. All these people have middle names. I don't have a middle name. It's my brother's fault. Anyway, we were discussing here the fact that when we talk about helicopter availability and what was going on during Cash Landrum, that our guest, Kevin D. Randall, was a helicopter pilot. And we're continuing on that. Kevin, you could maybe you can tell our audience a little bit about your experience uh, with helicopters and serving in the United States Army. There's not really much to tell. I think everybody's pretty familiar with it. I was a helicopter pilot aircraft commander in Vietnam. I have probably um, 1,200 combat hours in in helicopters in Vietnam, plus additional flight time, and uh, was involved in these sorts of things. We we did a number of exercises. When When I transitioned into the Air Force, we did a number of exercises where we had to move great numbers of people and great amounts of equipment from one location to another, and then complete some sort of mission. So I understand the logistics of that sort of an activity. And if you start bringing in a large number of people, there's going to be a paper trail. There's going to be a way of getting to that. People are going to talk about it. No matter how careful you are and how carefully you select the people, there's always going to be somebody that's going to talk about it. And once the information comes out, and Pappy Henderson is a perfect example of this. Pappy Henderson was involved in the Roswell case and had flown the debris or the bodies from from Roswell into Wright Field, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. 
and he was in the grocery store with his wife and saw in, I think it was with the, the National Tattler, one of those tabloid newspapers, the story of the um, Brazel case. And he bought the newspaper and gave it to her and said, read this. And she did. And he said, I've wanted to tell you about this for years. And I guess now that it's in the newspaper, I can tell you about it. And so he came forward and talked about it. The point is, he was wrong. Even though it was in the newspaper, he had access to classified information. He was not free to talk about it just because somebody had reported it in the newspaper. And so when you move into the Cash Landrum thing, with it's gotten an awful lot of publicity. There's been documentaries about it. There's an awful lot of information out there. There's magazine articles and newspaper articles about it. So somebody reading about that who was involved in it would say, well, now I can come forward and talk about what I'd seen or what I'd done. And none of that has happened with the Cash Landrum. So if you've got a report of a large number of helicopters operating in this time frame, and the information being out there, somebody sh- should have broken security and come forward. And we just don't have that. And that, that should be worrisome, which suggests only that the idea that there were a lot of helicopters involved in chasing this diamond-shaped object or whatever it was is true. It may be a misperception by the witnesses. It may be other other factors involved. But the fact we don't have anybody coming forward from the military end of it is quite worrisome, which then again suggests it wasn't some kind of an experiment. It was something else. And of course, we, you know, when we go back that far as Project Blue Book, for example, we do have people who had have come forward. Edward Ruppelt, the first head of that project, wrote a whole book about it. Basically, we're going through ufology 101 here when we're talking about Project Blue Book. And a lot of our listeners are going to know a lot of the basics about it. But I still think it's really important to bring it up from time to time. And go through it because back in those days, it wasn't as simple as, oh, it could be an illusion or holograms or something like that. We just didn't have the technology to reproduce what some of these things were doing back then. So for me, it seems like this is this is the golden era is really the best era to look at sightings personally. You know, why do you think people today should still care about something like Project Blue Book, which took place back in the 50s and 60s. Blue Book was the official investigation of UFOs. This was the government's interest in finding out what UFOs were. When we look at the history, which began in 1948, officially began in 1948, there's indications that an unofficial project existed as early as December of 1946. Project Blue Book, actually Project Sign, began in January of 1948 after the Kenneth Arnold sightings in June of 1947. But if we look at that history, we see there are periods where they had done good investigations, attempting to gather the proper information and learn what was going on. And then there were periods where they were paying lip service to it and they really didn't care as long as they could write an explanation down and file it away. They were happy. Ruppelt came in in 1951, I believe it was, when it was still Project Grudge and then it transformed into Project Blue Book under his his watch. And when he came in, it was because they hadn't been doing good investigations. They hadn't been doing much of anything and he revitalized the program. But a year and a half later, all of the, the steam was taken out of the program after the Robertson panel, which was a CIA-sponsored uh, review of the Project Blue Book materials, decided there was nothing to it and they needed to debunk it. And so we've got this history of Blue Book gathering information, filing it away, assuming that nobody would ever see it, 
And now it's out in the public arena that we, we can all look through the Project Blue Book files. And when we go through the Blue Book files, which is what I've done in the book, I looked at some of the best cases where there were multiple witnesses, where there was interaction with the environment, where there was some kind of other evidence involved, to see what the Air Force might have had hidden away in the files and discovered some very amazing things about the UFO cases that uh, some of them are well known and some of them are all that well known and how it how those explanations came to be and where we where it stands today. So we're learning from the Air Force investigation that if we look at it dispassionately and ignore either the ridicule factor or the the desire to believe and and try to examine exactly what was said and who said what and how it was written down, we get a whole different picture of Project Blue Book. There's some very good information in there. There's some very good cases in it. But you can see where at times the Air Force diverted attention. And what I mean here is in November of 1957, there was a series of sightings in Leveland, Texas. It took place over several hours. There were people all over the place, Leveland, seeing it. The craft getting close to the ground, stalling car engines, filling radios with static, dimming headlights, and that sort of thing. The Air Force said there were only three witnesses to the object. Don Kehoe, who was the director of uh, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which was a civilian organization, NGO, non-governmental organization, uh, said, no, there were, there, were, there were nine witnesses to the object. Uh, going through the Blue Book files, I found witnesses at 13 separate locations. So they got into a big fight over the number of witnesses and overlooked what was going on. You know, well, there were these many witnesses. No, there weren't. There were only these many witnesses. Well, what did they see? What was going on? How do you explain the electromagnetic effects? How do you explain them stalling the car engines? You get the idea that the sheriff of Leveland, who went out, and and you can see the reports in the Blue Book files and other locations, said that he uh, only got within about 900 yards of the thing, and it was only a red streak of light. And yet family members reported to Don Burlinson who coincidentally lives in Roswell, which is about three hours from Le- uh, Leveland, uh, interviewed the family of the sheriff uh, in 2000, I think it was. And they said, no, he'd gotten much closer and he'd seen a circular craft, some kind of uh, disc-shaped object. And you're thinking, well, they're talking about this some 50 years later. It really doesn't mean much in today's environment. I found a newspaper article where the reporters had actually interviewed the sheriff like two days after the sightings. And he said that he'd gotten much closer to it. It was circular. It was a red circular object that he'd seen. So we get some corroboration for that. And now we've got the sheriff involved. More to come. Leveland, Texas. Gene Steinberg, J. Randall Murphy, Kevin D. Randall. You're in. The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Frustrated trying to get business capital? Want to take the slow process and rejection out of the equation? GCNloans.com removes the slow, irritating approval process. Instead, get quick, simple funding. Powered by David Allen Capital, 80% of our pre-qualified clients are approved in days. Pre-qualify at GCNloans.com and get your money this week. It's that easy. GCNloans.com. That's GCNloans.com. Houseflies defecate every four to five minutes, spreading diseases and germs. Protect your food and your health with Bug Assault, a miniaturized shotgun, which utilizes ordinary table salt as ammunition. Non-toxic, no batteries required, only $39.95. Use discount code GCN and get an extra 10% off your purchase at BugAssault.com. 
Fire your fly swatter. Get your bug assault today. USA Radio News with Wendy King. On this Memorial Weekend, people are heading to the parks and beaches despite the coronavirus pandemic. Governor Andrew Cuomo said beachgoers were following the rules. But in coastal South Georgia, Tybee Island Mayor Shirley Sessions said some beachgoers wore masks, but not enough of them. I think it's one of those things that is becoming a complacent situation, and I think that people are just... uh, thinking that the sun is going to, you know, kill any germs that that may be out there. And they've just gotten uh, a little bit uh, uh, kind of forgetting that that, that it's still very real. Minnesota's governor is easing some restrictions in his state. Starting on May 27th, places of worship may open at a 25 percent occupancy if they adhere to social distancing and other public health guidelines to keep congregants safe. This is USA Radio News. A fire has engulfed a warehouse on San Francisco's Fisherman's Wharf. It sent smoke over the waterfront, threatening to spread to a historic World War II-era ship before firefighters brought the flames under control. Lieutenant John Baxter with the fire department says this was a tough one to fight. Throughout the progress of this fire, we did see almost every portion of this building collapse in one area or another. The Department of Justice has sent a letter to the mayor of Los Angeles warning that an extension of the coronavirus stay-at-home order may be unlawful. Eric Garcetti says the question is, do you want to save lives or not? We'll be guided by science and industry working together to figure out the steps forward. And last thing I'll say is there's no you know, city in, in the world that right now doesn't have some sort of orders and restrictions because we know this virus kills. Full stop. You're listening to USA Radio News. In today's world, violent crime can victimize anyone, anytime. When violent crime confronts you, will you be able to protect yourself and your loved ones? For personal protection training, there's none better than FrontSight, the world's premier firearms training facility near Las Vegas, Nevada. Learn firearm skills from FrontSight's world-class instructors, led by FrontSight's founder and director, Dr. Ignatius Piazza. Whether you're in law enforcement, the military, or a private citizen, after your first firearm training course at FrontSight, you'll leave with skills that surpass 99% of the gun-owning population, guaranteed. And now, you and your family can train at FrontSight free of charge. Yes, free. Go now to FrontSight.com slash radio to secure a $2,000 four-day defensive handgun course absolutely free with no catch. Enter F-R-O-N-T-S-I-G-H-T dot com slash radio. Act now before these free courses are all taken. Secure your free four-day course at FrontSight.com slash radio. FrontSight, America's gun training destination. This is Be the Merciless. You are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Exactly according to my plan. Okay, so you're the kind of guy who likes to chase the original sources, I guess, as you did here, Kevin Randall, to Leveland, Texas, and the original newspaper story, that is? Many, many stories about it. You can probably go to your local library and pull up the microfilm from November, early November of 1957 and find stories about the level and sightings. But the problem, the problem is, and you go through the Project Blue Book files, which um, are available online, 
and you and you get a different perspective of what it, what exactly was going on. That the Air Force actually knew more than they let on. But you also see where it was suggested that maybe the sheriff shouldn't be talking to the news media about it. And you can see how the whole thing was manipulated to make it much less exciting than it really was. You've got you've got an object approaching cars and causing the car engines to stall. And so now you've got interaction with the environment. The sheriff actually took his daughter out to a, a ranch near Level Land day or two later where there was a burned area found in one of the one of the ranchers fields which now presents us with some physical evidence unfortunately in 1957 everybody's so busy arguing about the number of witnesses nobody gets out there and looks at it we also see that uh, according to the newspapers, there was one uh, Air Force investigator, I think it was from the 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron, from Reese Air Force Base, which is in Lubbock, which is 15 minutes away from Leveland, uh, who came out and spent most of the day interviewing some of the witnesses. But there are hints in the Project Blue Book files of a much higher ranking officer coming out and conducting a little bit more in-depth investigation. So there are hints of things in the Blue Book files which suggest to us that the case was much more exciting than the Air Force led on and the news media led on at the time. And you also have to remember back in 1957, now we're in the period where ridicule is the factor. The news media doesn't take reports of flying saucers real anymore. They think they're, they're too sophisticated to believe in alien spacecraft. And so they're on board with the Air Force explanations. They believe the Air Force is telling them the truth about what's going on, and the Air Force is shading the truth quite a bit. And so by looking at these sort of cases in, in, in the Best of Project Blue Book, I was able to bring in our knowledge today, the interviews with the sheriff's wife and daughter from, from 2000, and apply it to the information that was developed and uh, put in the Project Blue Book files back in 1957. So we get a whole different take on exactly what happened. In, in that case. But can we really be sure of what happened? I mean, with this, it kind of reminds me of the Fox Lake case in 1996 in the Yukon up here in Canada, because the Leveland case, that happened like about an hour after Sputnik 2 was launched. And how do we know it wasn't some re-entering space debris? Now, in the Yukon case, we've also got people who said that they watched it pass overhead, saw windows, somebody's car stalled, another one, their tape deck dimmed and, and slowed down. And so you have these conflicting reports from eyewitnesses who say that this object was much closer. And yet you've got the skeptics that say, well, no, it was probably just this reentering space debris. There was no reentering space debris in uh, November of 1957. Yes, there was a Sputnik launch, but there was also one 30 days earlier in October of 1950, Sputnik, Sputnik 1 went up. So there's clearly no reason for the people in Level Land to start seeing UFOs because the second launch hadn't been reported widely at the time and they were unaware of it. You have the people at different locations describing the same thing. You have the law enforcement talking about it and it's approaching close to the ground and then taking off. It's not like something seen re-entering. In the re-entry, um, Zod 4, I think in 1968, broke up and there were people who reported a cigar-shaped craft with square windows on it, similar to the, the Child's Witted sighting from 1948, which probably was meteoric in nature. But here with level land, the thing is 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 approaching the ground. It's landed in certain areas, and you've got the people 
over a long period of time seeing. It's not like this all happened at one time. It, the object was seen in a number of locations around level land, and the sightings took place over about two and a half and three hours. And then a couple of hours later, you have a, another set of sightings at White Sands Missile Range, which is several hundred miles away. And the people at White Sands, and I should point out, military policemen at White Sands had no way of knowing what was being reported in level land, Texas. And I talked to one of the MPs who was there at the time, and he told me what he had seen and how it was misrepresented in the Air Force reports and how it was misrepresented in the newspapers. So it's really not two of the same things. The The reentry theory doesn't work because it it lasted way too long. There was nothing to be reentering. If it had been meteoric in, in, in origin, it would have lasted, the whole sighting would have lasted less than a minute, Uh, You might see the ionized trail from it for several minutes persisting, but uh, that's it. And um, you've got the people who are talking about it being very close to the ground. In fact, the Air Force never even talked about it being any kind of reentry or um, uh, something like that, simply simply because it's simply untrue. And according to the news reports or the weather reports, the sky was overcast. So they wouldn't have been seeing that kind of thing anywhere unless it was below the cloud deck. And uh, so you can kind of rule out the idea of returning space debris in in 1957 because there wasn't a whole lot of space debris to return. And if it was meteoric, it would have lasted much longer. And I don't know of any cases where uh, a meteor stalled a car engine. So uh, you've got to take a look at all of that sort of thing. And you've got reports, and they're not just... They're all around the level land area, so it's not like it's in a very confined area. It's it's over several square miles that these, these things take place, and the witnesses got good looks at it. It wasn't that they saw the thing in the distance or they um, saw the thing in the sky. It came down close to them. It was on the ground for four or five minutes, according to some of the witnesses who saw it on the ground uh, in different locations. So they all got a very good look at it. So it's not quite the same thing as some of those other cases. It also shows when you have things like this, a disparity of information, that they didn't have what we have today. Anything that happens that's important, you would think we would have immediate access to the information. It would go worldwide. And it would be more difficult to have widely disparate versions. On the other hand, sometimes it doesn't seem that way. It seems that you could look at the same event and A happened and the other version is, no, it was Z. So I don't know whether today's media situation would have made it easier or harder to get a handle on this. The Air Force would have had a much more difficult time of suppressing the information. They were able to come up with a suggestion. I think one of the reports said, well, it was ball lightning. 1957, science wasn't even sure ball lightning existed. So we're using a uh, unusual, unproven phenomenon to explain another uh, unexplainable phenomenon. Uh, We now understand what ball lightning is, and rarely is it uh, larger than two two, uh, feet in diameter. It persists for just a matter of seconds. And, and their displays are extremely rare. So you wouldn't have it been seen all over level land in that area for several hours, a couple of hours, um, 
and it wouldn't have been as large as it was described by many of the witnesses who saw it or were close to it. Wouldn't have had the effects on the car engines and the headlights and the radio. Might have filled the radio with static. We know lightning can kind of, an electrical discharge will cause the uh, uh, radios to fill with static, but it certainly doesn't dim headlights and stall car engines. Exactly. I mean, this is kind of the point I was hoping to get to with all of that is that there there will be a case that seems really great at first with all of this information. And someone will come out and say, well, what about this? This seemed to happen at that time. And then people like yourself or ufologists that dig into it more will go, well, no. Like even the, the Fox Lake sighting that I was just talking about had very similar things. They tried to write it off as this re-entering space capsule. I have to say this, Randall, there are sure quite a few space capsules breaking up in the atmosphere around a time when there were, could only have been one or two. More to come with Kevin Randall, Gina Randall, you're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items and entails T-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast jumbo tote bag, all sorts of T-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, you know, great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop by, and take a shopping tour. Do the letters IRS give you anxiety? I'm Dan Pilla. I've defended people from the IRS for more than 40 years. My book, How to Get Tax Amnesty, created the tax resolution industry and is responsible for helping hundreds of thousands of people. It can help you, too. If you're a non-filer or facing IRS enforcement right now, your case is unique. You need real help, not cookie-cutter advice. My clients get my personal attention. Buy my book at danpilla.com and get a free consultation directly with me. That's danpilla.com. Let's start solving your tax problem right now. We've all seen and perhaps use the alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Have you noticed how it dries your skin and as soon as the alcohol evaporates, it's no longer effective? GCNteam.com has alcohol-free antibacterial soap and foam meeting or exceeding all requirements set forth by the United States Food and Drug Administration. Come to GCNteam.com keyword antibacterial or call 877-878-4203. 
Stop aging now. Restore those joints. Boost your strength. Because it's official. Nutramedical has released the most exciting, powerful anti-aging supplement on the market. Dr. Bill Deagle's Red Deer Velvet DR has been approved by the U.S. Patent Office. Imagine stem cell rejuvenation all in one capsule without huge expense. Dr. Bill MD discovered that as an unborn baby grows in the mother's womb, he or she does not deteriorate or physically age. Red Deer Velvet DR, like the uterus, provides 300 biomolecules and six hormones protected in one special DR. DR capsule that delivers lipid packages directly into your circulation. This patented technology bypasses the stomach and is released into the small bowel unaltered by digestive enzymes and stomach acid. Remember, Red Deer Velvet DR. Improve endurance, stimulate your immune system, increase learning ability, and even improve sexual libido with Red Deer Velvet DR. Click NutriMedical.com. That's N-U-T-R-I Medical.com. Or call toll-free 888-212-8871 and get on the road to a newer, rejuvenated, happier you. If you have diabetes and you're on Medicare, Medicaid, or have private insurance, you may qualify for a new continuous glucose monitor. Managing your diabetes is crucial to your health. The new CGM can automatically and easily help you manage your diabetes more effectively. And by using a CGM, you can eliminate the one thing most people with diabetes dislike the most, finger sticks. Now you can automatically manage your diabetes and end the painful finger sticks. Solara Medical Supplies makes it simple for you to have a new CGM. We'll do all the insurance paperwork for you and deliver the newest in diabetic care technology right to your door. Take charge of your diabetes today with the help of a new continuous glucose monitor. Call now to learn more. 800-547-5331. 800-547-5331. 800 That's 800-547-5331. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast. It's amazing how many secret spacecraft there must have been then, Randall, that they have all these returning space capsules flooding the airwaves in 1957. Or, I mean, even later. I mean, like, how does that explain where one person sees this thing, they stop and get out of their car, and they look and they see it hovering over the lake? You know, that's like seeing in the case of Leveland when it's like on the road or so we have something similar with the Phoenix lights, too, where there's the flares that are going down behind the mountains. Yeah. OK, those are flares. But that doesn't explain the other people who saw it go some kind of craft go straight overhead. So why are there always these extras added on to these cases, do you think? I'm not sure about extras being added onto the case of the Phoenix lights. Uh, you've got a lot of people outside seeing a lot of strange things. And we do know the flare explanation uh, resolved part of it. And we, we have all this other information about, I think, of a big triangular-shaped object. And I, I, in my mind, I, I see it um, as going from uh, Tucson in southeastern Arizona up to up to the northwestern parts of Arizona. But I, I think the, the path may have been the other direction. But you have uh, people looking at it, and they're seeing it at different times and from different locations, and so you have that, that sort of thing going on. Uh, with Leveland, you just had the people, a couple of the witnesses came forward after they heard the news reports the next day and said that they'd seen the thing. But we don't have, we don't have any evidence of the other explanations. We don't have 
Uh, um, I, I say they, they they threw out the ball lightning thing to kind of confuse the issue, and I think the Air Force the Air Force job in 1957, as they saw it, was to explain UFO sightings. It wasn't to investigate them, was to explain them. And you read the Air Force regulations, and they tell you that basically is it. If the case is easily solved, if you have a good explanation for it, you being the uh, local Air Force uh, UFO investigator then you're authorized to tell the press about it. If you have no good explanation, then you're required to tell the press to check with the Air Force Office of Information at the Pentagon. The information separated that way. This is in the regulation, so you can see yeah. the dichotomy there. There's also all kinds of letters from Project Blue Book in the administrative files that you read. They say, well, possible exp uh, explanations will be accepted. So, well, that could have been this. Okay, that's what it becomes. And you can see on the project cards sometimes where it would say possible aircraft or possible balloon, the possible has been crossed out. And so then it became a balloon and the, the uh, explanations continue on in that vein. In the Lubbock Lights, and interesting, Lubbock is not all that far from Leveland. We've got the series of photographs taken by Carl Hart Jr., which shows us the V-shaped formation of the lights traveling over, over Lubbock. But you've got a lot of people out there looking at things, and anything they see in the sky they're not familiar with, they report it as a UFO. So then you can begin to see explanations for it. There is no good explanation for the photographs taken in Lubbock. I talked to Carl Hart Jr. He's a guy that took them. He was 19 at the time. And I always say that 99% of the UFO photographs were taken by teenage boys, and 99% of those are hoaxes. But I talked to Carl Hart Jr. in the mid-1990s, so it's, what, 40, 40 years after he had taken his photographs. And I asked him point blank, I said, what did you photograph? And he says, uh, I still don't know. There is no reason for him not to tell us what, he, what he'd photographed. He'd somehow faked him or hoaxed him in 1951. There's no reason for him not to tell us in today's environment. So you've got these photographs that are inexplicable. Do they prove alien visitation? No, they're just photographs that we cannot explain in terrestrial terms. And that doesn't necessarily take us to the extraterrestrial. And I think that's, you know, when we look at the whole of, of the, the UFO phenomena, we also have a group of people, and especially after the, the Robertson panel in 1953, put out the idea we have to debunk UFOs. They used the term debunk UFOs. They suggested that teachers not allow students to do reports on UFOs, not allow students to read books on UFOs, to find sightings that seemed mysterious at one time, but now have good, solid explanations and point, point these out to the to the public. And you can see how that kind of morphed into the um, um, the mainstream of the time. You go back to 1947 with the sightings there, and you'd see even then they were kind of lowering the ridicule curtain. And one of the headlines, I think it was in a newspaper in Kansas, said, flying saucers seen in 38 states, but not Kansas. Because Kansas was a dry state, meaning, of course, that um, there weren't a lot of drunks out there hallucinating. So there's always been this ridicule factor, and there's always been the people that seem to be too sophisticated to believe in alien visitation. And there are always the people out there who, for some reason, want to uh, dissuade you from your beliefs, no matter what your belief structure is. Uh, they may not like the president, so it's their mission to convince you the president is a bad guy. Or they may love the president, it's their mission to convince you that the president is a good guy. But, you know, you've got to take a look at 
all the information yourself and decide where you come down. And I think in with the UFO, they were trying to direct that information. They were actively working to produce articles and um, other information that suggested that UFOs weren't real. There was a movie that came out in 1956 called Cleverly UFO, Unidentified Flying Objects. And they interviewed some of the witnesses uh, that had come forward, like Delbert Newhouse, who'd taken photographs of movie footage of UFOs over Trenton, Utah in 1952. Uh, Nick Mariana, who'd taken a f- movie footage of UFOs over Great Falls, Montana in 1950. Pilots who'd seen UFOs and this sort of thing. And there's a lot of correspondence in the Air Force administrative files about how they are going to respond to this movie. It's not that they just going to say, well, good movie, we enjoyed it, have at it. It was, how? what are we going to do to dissuade people from believing? How are we going to respond to the questions that are going to come out there? It's, uh, clearly, they're directing their personnel on how to respond to questions about the film, and it's all in a derogatory sense, you know. And you can see that, as I say, by looking at other aspects, other cases from the Project Blue Book files where they append explanations that are patently preposterous. I don't really look at the Kelly Hopkinsville case in the Vestal Project Blue Book. This is a um, sighting where a family in Kentucky thought they were being harassed by alien creatures and were shooting at them. They'd seen UFOs. They finally got so scared they went to the sheriff's office. And the Air Force really never investigated it. There was some guy who kind of interjected himself and it's some major who heard about the story and he went down and looked into it. But the Air Force explanation... And there's really not a case file. There's just information only. But their explanation is, well, it was a monkey that got loose from a uh, traveling carnival. And these, uh, the people involved, um, Langsfords, I think it was, uh, Sutton family, the Langford family, were holy rollers. And they had been to a revival meeting that night. And they were all ginned up from the revival meeting. So they were having all these hallucinations. Preposterous because A, they weren't holy rollers, and B, there was no carnival in there to let a monkey escape. And these guys are shooting at it with shotguns, and it's getting close enough, and it's like it's harassing them, and it comes back, and then it goes away, and it comes back, and they're shooting at it with shotguns. They say, We've hit it, and we knocked it down, it jumped up and ran away. Yeah, what kind of monkey has that capability? And if there was one that does that, we should get a hold of that monkey to understand what kind of body armor it was wearing. But, I mean, they just offered preposterous explanations. And you see those preposterous explanations repeated in the skeptical community without any critical uh, uh, thought about it. And that's always kind of what bothered me. In And it works both ways. I mean, we've got the true believers who are not going to reject a sighting, no matter how carefully you've debunked that sighting and proven that it was something mundane. They're not going to let go of it. And on the skeptical side of the fence, the debunkers are not going to accept any evidence that suggests their explanation simply doesn't work. They're incapable of saying, I don't know. It's unidentified. They well, seem incapable it, of saying that. What's and really interesting. That's all we have. Kevin, what's really interesting about all of that is that even with that anti-UFO bias that they had back then, when they did the statistical breakdown of all the sightings that they, that they kept, I mean, you can imagine how many that, that just went into the trash bin. There was still over 26% that they classified as unknown. And that means not just insufficient data. 
that means that there was enough data there that if it was something that was identifiable, they should have been able to identify it, but they couldn't. So even with all of that bias, there was still something weird going on that they didn't know how to explain. I looked at one of the cases in the Best of Project Blue Book toward the end of the um, Project Blue Book's life. took place in Austin, Texas. A guy had seen something and watched it for quite a while and uh, reported to the Air Force. An Air Force officer, a lieutenant, came out and, and talked to him. They filled out that stupid form the Air Force had, which is looking at it from a scientific perspective is really doesn't gather the kind of information you really want gathered. Let's gather out- this information and get back to that. Best of Project Blue Book is the book. Kevin Randall, Gene Steinberg, J. Randall Murphy, you're in. The Paracast. Visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Classic science fiction at its best. Available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R O C K O I D S.com. Tahibo Tea Club's original pure Pau Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus doesn't grow on. So it naturally has antifungal, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-infection, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. But maybe more importantly, Tahibo Tea Club's original pure Pau Arco Super Tea builds corpuscles in the blood which carry oxygen to our organs and cells. Our organs and cells need oxygen to regenerate themselves. The immune system needs oxygen to develop, and cancer happens to die in oxygen. The tea is great for healthy people, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. Tahibo Tea Club's original pure Pau Arco Super Tea is only $34.95 plus shipping. Order now at ShopSuperTea.com or call 818-984-6100. That's ShopSuperTea.com or call 818-984-6100. ShopSuperTea.com. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So let's talk about that case, Kevin Randall, you were about to bring up in our previous segment. Go ahead. As I say, it took place in, I think, 1967 in Austin, Texas. Guy got a good look at the thing. They filled out the forms. They sent it off to the Air Force, and it was classified as insufficient data for scientific analysis. Well, the witness was just enraged by this. 
And you can see in the correspondence again, he, he wants to know what information didn't he provide? What more did they need to know to make any kind of a analysis of, of, of his sighting? You know, he, he's given him the direction. He's given him the time. He's given him the altitude. He's given him the description of what transpired. He's given him all this information. And they said insufficient data for scientific analysis. Eventually, they classified it as unidentified. They didn't have an answer. But when you look at the Project Blue Book files, you find out that some 30 or 40 percent of the cases are labeled as insufficient data for a scientific analysis, which means they're not explained. They're simply not in that unidentified category. They were able to limit the, the number of unidentifieds in the Project Blue files to something like 701 out of 12,000 cases. But then you look at the, the, the uh, 4,500 cases that are insufficient data, and then you look at some of the other cases where they've appended solutions, like Level Land, that are preposterous. You could say as many as 50 or 60 percent of the sightings really aren't identified. And yet there are, are skeptics out there who are going through the unidentifieds and trying to explain those. And, and clearly, our knowledge in today's environment, our scientific knowledge, allows us to explain some cases that we, didn't, we couldn't explain back then. And our access to what were formerly classified projects allows us to explain some cases that we couldn't explain back then. I, I think of the Charles Witted case specifically, which in 1948, these two airline pilots claimed that they saw a cigar-shaped object whiz by their airliner. It was cigar-shaped, had a row of square windows, double row of square windows, and a flame out the back, some kind of a rocket. Originally, I think it may have been Hynek said, said something about it being meteoric, and they said, no, we don't know what it is. It's unidentified. Well, then we get to the Zon 4 reentry, which I alluded to a little bit earlier, and that was a spacecraft that returned and was breaking up, and a number of people who saw it thought it was a cigar-shaped craft with square windows on it with a flame out the back. Uh, you go to, it used to be on YouTube, it was called Meteor Compilation. It was three minutes and 19 seconds long. And it was somebody put together all these videos of meteors breaking up in the atmosphere that he'd collected from YouTube and, and put them all together. And you could see how somebody catching part of this out of a corner of an eye for a, a split second could get the idea of a lighted cockpit and windows behind a, a flaming object. And you, you could see how people could make that mistake. So I think the Charles Witted case is explainable as a meteor because it's 1948, so it's clearly not returning space debris. Uh, Jerry Clark and I disagree on that. Jerry Clark still thinks it's a very good sighting. I think it's explainable based on what we know today and other examples of that sort of thing. So we can, we, can, we can do some of that as well. But there's a great number of cases that just don't have any kind of real explanation. One of those cases, and I, and I talk about it in the, in, in the Best of Project Blue Book, is a sighting that took place in 1954, I believe. The Condon Committee, which was the University of Colorado study of UFOs, paid for by the Air Force, and the Air Force said, here's what we want you to find, and the Condon Committee in their study said, oh, here's what we found, exactly what the Air Force wanted. Which, of course, the UFOs pose no threat to national security, that um, the Air Force had done a good job investigating them, and the project should be closed. And all those findings were enumerated in the final report. But they had one sighting that always kind of intrigued me, which they, they said was a, they labeled it as a natural phenomenon, so rare, it had never been seen before or since. And I'm thinking, didn't you just sort of describe a flying saucer? <laughs> but I'm also thinking that, that they said, well, you know, we could learn nothing of scientific value by continued studying of UFOs. And I'm thinking, if you've got a natural phenomenon like that, wouldn't that actually induce you to want to find out what it was and provide something of scientific 
information to it. And so I, you know, it's not a very long chapter in the book. It's a short chapter, but the documents are there to show what was seen and a newspaper article about it. And the pilots were interrogated by the military. And one of the other crew members was one of the pilots. Uh, it may have been a, a third pilot on the aircraft or a navigator or something like that. He wasn't brought in for interrogation, and he asked them what what that had been all about, and they said, well, we can't tell you about it. So now we've got a very interesting sighting that we really don't have a lot of information about, but it is quite intriguing. And you can see how the information was manipulated by the military and then the Condon Committee to reject this sighting. They, with the level land sightings, which had taken place, as I mentioned, in 1957, so 10 years later, the Condon Committee is doing his investigation, so it's not that distant. You could have found the witnesses had you wanted to look. The only reference in the Condon Committee report to level land is, well, they had talked to a woman who in 1967 said her car had been stalled by a UFO, and they conducted what they called uh, magnetic mapping of her hood to see where the compass would point as they placed it in different places on the hood, and then did the same thing to cars of similar make at the similar time from the similar plant to see if there was any deviation. They actually found a couple of deviations that they found weren't important. Then they said, well, we don't understand how a car could be stalled, and then when the electromagnetic field is removed, the car would spontaneously start. And that got me to thinking, what does the reports really say? And you go back and you look at them, and I looked at all the ones that Mark Rodiker did in his massive uh, analysis of the electromagnetic effects where cars were stalled and that sort of thing. So it, it took place over many, many years, um, not just level land. And what I found by looking through that is nobody really asked the key question. And, and it came out of level land where the, the object took off and then they said the car started properly. They didn't say that it started spontaneously, and nobody asked them, well, did you turn the key? Did you have to start it yourself? Which is a critical question that nobody thought to ask back in 1957. And you go through a lot of the cases, and they talk about the car starting normally. And you can interpret that to mean that it just regenerated, it spontaneously restarted. Or the person did something, pushed the starter, turned the key did something and the car started normally and worked normally after the object had left the area. And you go through the reports and it's really not clear how the car started, except in a couple of them where they do say, well, when the object left, the car started again. So it's not as ambiguous as most of the uh, most of the entries. The Condon Committee w was able to overlook the electromagnetic effects because one woman reported electromagnetic effects and they were unable to re reproduce them and they found her story to be a little bit shaky. And, and granted, her story is a little bit shaky, but you shouldn't reject all of the electromagnetic effects that you see because one woman's report wasn't as uh, solid as it could have been. And there's any number of other cases they could have looked at. They could have talked to the sheriff they could have talked to some of the people who saw the object in 1957 and got their take on it because many of those people were still around and hadn't left the area. So they could have done that had they wanted to, but they avoided that. And you go through the Condon report and you see they avoided, avoided some other investigations that might have led them in a direction they didn't want to go. Uh, and it's the same thing with the Air Force investigations. Sometimes they just didn't want to go 
in, in a certain direction. There's any number of cases in the Blue Book files that are listed as information only, and they've got like newspaper clippings or something like that, or they'll say not case, but information only. So they gathered the information, but they did nothing with it. And then there's an awful lot of cases that are just flat missing from the Project Blue Book files as well. So you've got a real problem there. And I look at some of that in the, the best of Project Blue Book and try to bring some kind of newer information to it, because of course I can look at it from the perspective of 2020 and say, here's all the other information I was able to gather after the sighting was over and by the people who were involved. You know, like I said, I talked to Carl Hart Jr. in the mid-1990s and got his take on it, on, on his sighting. So I could bring that to the table that many others couldn't do. Let me ask you a question here that we can frame for our next segment. And that is, in putting this book together... What surprised you about things that were overlooked in the early cases, and we're kind of covering some of it now, but maybe get more specific on other cases where I wonder why this wasn't done, or if we knew then what we knew now, we'd have this answer. What we do know is that Kevin Randall will be joining us also on this weekend's edition of the After the Paracast podcast. Part of a Paracast Plus subscription. For more info, check theparacast.plus. The best of Project Blue Book. The author is Kevin D. Randall. I'm Gene. He's Randall Murphy. You're in The Paracast. As you know, neighbors, web hosting can be pretty cheap, but not all hosting is the same. DreamHost wins best of awards year after year. You get unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, and even the low-cost plans put your sites on high-performance SSDs. Want to know more about what DreamHost has to offer? Go to technightowl.com host. Once again, that's technightowl.com host. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's The Coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Find out more at rockoids.com. That's rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. So you're wearing a mask every day now? Yeah. Where are you getting them? Same website where I get my neck and body wraps, sunnybay.com. Really? And they're handmade, just like their wraps in the USA. Oh, and good quality? Oh, very good. These are disposable face masks, and they make cloth face masks, too. Good price? <laughs> That's the best part. Ten masks for only $6. Wow. As a public service, SunnyBay.com is now making cloth face masks by hand in the Seattle area and sourcing disposable face masks with level one protection at SunnyBay.com. Get a 10-pack of high-quality disposable face masks for only $6 or choose a handmade, washable, reusable cloth face mask with high two layers of quality cotton fabrics. Supplies are limited. Get details and order at SunnyBay.com, a Biomed DB design company. Go to Sunny-Bay.com for disposable or cloth face masks. Just click Sunny-Bay.com. That's Sunny-Bay.com. 
This is George Dory from Coast to Coast AM and History Channel's Ancient Aliens. We support the amazing energy, nutrition, and skincare products from Jeunesse. Jeunesse products are designed by leading doctors in their field with natural ingredients and even stem cell technology. These products help your body perform and look better. Shop Jeunesse at GCNLife.com or call 1-844-443-6637. GCNLife.com or 844-443-6637. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? $92,000. Ouch. The IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called federal tax management. You could just tell they knew what they were talking about. Right then and there, I felt like I had some hope. Stop the liens, levies, and garnishments fast and qualify for one of several special IRS programs that could reduce or even eliminate your tax debt. So, how did it go for Jake? They did what they said they would do. They came through for me. I ended up saving an unbelievable amount. I was so jazzed. I was extremely happy. If you owe more than $10,000 in back taxes, take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax manager. Hotline now, 800-503-8625, 800-503-8625. Hi, this is Dr. Joel Wallach, the Mineral Doctor. You've heard me talk about 90 for Life for years. 60 minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, 2 fatty acids. You may not know this, that I've actually designed arthrodex for animals. That's right. Your pets need 90 for Life too. Get this essential pet product by calling 877-279-9422. That's 877-279-9422. Again, 877-279-9422. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So Kevin Randall, framing my crazy question here. Things surprise you about what you came across doing this book? Things that overturned? earlier explanations because we know now so much more than we knew then we hope what springs to mind immediately is the socorro landing from 1964 lonnie zamora the police officer who saw landed craft saw alien creatures saw some kind of beings uh, landing traces left behind uh, as i said he was a police officer i was uh, interviewing ben moss and tony angiola on my radio program and during the course of the program they said three people had called the police station prior to lonnie zamora seeing the thing and they hadn't bothered to write anything down, or they, they nobody bothered to gather more information. I said, well, did you look at the police logs to see what was logged? And I never got an answer to that question, and it got me interested in that. So going through the Project Blue Book file, I found a report written that night by a Captain Richard Holder. Now, Holder was an Army captain. He was stationed at the White Sands Missile Range, but his actual duty station, because the White Sands Missile Range is huge, as anybody who looks at a map of New Mexico knows, goes from Alamogordo almost all the way to Socorro. And his duty station was actually closer to Socorro than it was to Alamogordo, so he lived in Socorro. So within 90 minutes of uh, Lonnie Zamora seeing the object and it taking off, Holder is talking to Zamora along with an, an FBI agent. So that night, Holder writes a report. It's a short report, half a page, single spaced. 
that he calls into the Pentagon. And in the course of that report, he says that the police station had gotten three calls that night about the thing before Lonnie Zamora had seen it. So we have the documentation now. We know that people called into the police station about seeing this thing. What really is surprising, nobody ever bothered to to look into that, to, to find more about it. I did I did a book called Encounter in the Desert about the Zamora case and, and go into great detail about all this sort of stuff. Uh, and, and, and it's mentioned in Project Blue Book as well. You know, here is documentation of other witnesses. So now Socorro is no longer a single witness case albeit Lonnie Zamora is a very credible witness, uh, it's no longer single witness. It's got a number of other witnesses. Talking to Ray Stanford, he said that he had talked to a couple of women in New Mexico um, within a week or 10 days, something like that, of the sighting. They had seen something in the sky as well, and he took some information. I asked him who they were, and he said, well, it's in my notes. I don't know who they are. And I'm thinking, if we could find out who they were, and we could find a phone book or something from 1964, which isn't that hard to find. We might be able to find some other witnesses in the area. Granted, you know, looking at this in the late 2000 teens, it's a long shot, but it's possible we might have been able to locate some other witnesses in the Socorro area. At worst case scenario, we would have gotten a, a better view of the flight path of the thing because we would have known where the witnesses were when they when they saw the object. But that was one one thing that surprised me was that we had additional witnesses, so it's not a single witness case anymore. We've got some some good witnesses uh, about that. The other thing that surprised me is looking at what um, Hector Quintanella had written. He was the char- in charge of Project Blue Book in 1964. He, in fact, basically closed it out. I say basically there was a lieutenant, um, Carmen Morano, who was the last officer in charge, and his job was really to gather the files and close out the office and all of that stuff after Hector Quintanella had left. You know, you look at all of that sort of thing, you you get a different idea of what was going on in, in 1964. So Quintanella is sent to New Mexico. He goes to New Mexico. He's got orders that says he has a top secret clearance and he has he's supposedly granted access to all the top secret projects going on at Holloman Air Force Base and White Sands Missile Range. And, and his orders he carries with him says they're supposed to cooperate with him. So he goes down there and he thinks he's going to find an explanation and he can't do it. He finds nothing in the classified projects going on in these locations that would explain what Lonnie Zamora had seen. In the end of his book, he said that he was sure that the explanation was somewhere in Lonnie Zamora's brain, meaning that Lonnie Zamora had seen something or knew something that he hadn't talked about that would explain the sighting completely, but he didn't know what it was, and he reluctantly labeled the sighting as unidentified, knowing, and he, and, he, and he actually says this, knowing that the UFO hobbyist would go nuts when it came out that the Air Force had been unable to identify what Lonnie Zamora saw because it involved a landed craft, and it involved him seeing two beings outside the craft for a period of time, a short period of time, granted granted that. You look at the Project Blue Book files, I think there are only three cases in the Project Blue Book files where people reported seeing beings associated with the craft that aren't labeled as psychological, meaning the person reporting it has some kind of psychological 
problems. If you see a landed UFO and the creatures from inside, well, clearly you have psychological problems. Is their rationale? It doesn't mean that they they looked at that. But with Zamora, they they didn't say that. And there's one or two other cases where they didn't say that. They were quite candid about um, not being able to find an explanation. So anyhow, that was one of the things that springs to mind immediately is looking at the Zocoro case and realizing that there's much more to it than we had thought uh, or had been reported. And like I said, I, I, I did uh, Encounter in the Desert, which explores this in great depth. And then in, in, in Project, the best Project Blue Book, I have a, a synopsis of the case that outlines some of these other witnesses, some of this other information. So you get an idea that the Socorro case is much more important than I think the skeptics and some of the UFO field have led us to believe. Then again, I ran across when I was looking into that as well, that Quintanella believed the Socorro landing incident was connected with the lunar excursion module from the Apollo program, some kind of uh, classified whether it was a test vehicle or a related vehicle. And, and of course, he stuck to that right to the very end. No, I don't think Quintanella ever did that. Yeah, he did, for sure. I've, I've looked it up in several places. So I, 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 I don't know how you missed it. I have his book. He wrote himself personally, his book. And he says in his book, he doesn't know what Zamora saw. He has no explanation for it. The case is labeled as unidentified. The skeptics have come out with the lunar lander explanation. But when you look at the documentation, it wasn't available in New Mexico in 1964 to be landing other other than a mock-up of it that, that they, they were testing using a helicopter. And Lonnie Zamora says nothing about a helicopter. There's nothing to suggest a helicopter involved. There was a craft that was able to land itself and take off by itself without any kind of other, other support. There I would were, also there, think, uh, Kevin, that... A helicopter is a pretty noisy device. I yes. mean, you obviously know better than any of us here, but I haven't been that far from flying helicopters. And boy, it does, it does make its presence known. Yeah, and, that, and that's another point. And had it been a helicopter, that explanation would have been found. I mean, the helicopter lunar lander explanation would have found immediately. But the documentation does not support that. And, and Quintanella, clearly in his book, I mean, he wrote it and uh, with with an eye to being very, very skeptical. I mean, he hated, I think he hated Hynek, and he hated the idea of alien spacecraft, and he hated the people who believed in UFOs. So had he had any sort of inkling that he had an explanation, even if it was a far-fetched one, he was going to put it down and, and run with that explanation. We and hope you will not hate these announcements. We hope you won't hate these announcements. We've got a few here. And then we'll get back with Kevin D. Randall and Gene and Randall. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Anytime, any place, anywhere, radio remains the most intimate of all forms of media. At home, at work, in the car, on smartphones. Over 90% of consumers still listen to radio every week. That makes choosing radio as a place to advertise your business one of the best decisions you can make. Email advertise at GCNlive.com and partner up with an experienced GCN representative. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. Houseflies defecate every four to five minutes. 
spreading diseases and germs. Protect your food and your health with Bug Assault, a miniaturized shotgun which utilizes ordinary table salt as ammunition. Non-toxic, no batteries required, only $39.95. Use discount code GCN and get an extra 10% off your purchase at bugassault.com. Fire your fly swatter. Get your bug assault today. USA Radio News with Wendy King. President Trump says he wants Americans to go back to church. He's declared them to be essential. The governors need to do the right thing and allow these very important essential places of faith to open right now for this weekend. If they don't do it, I will override the governors. In America, we need more prayer. Not less. Some governors say the president can't order them to open churches, but the Justice Department has already been warning states they cannot let businesses reopen while keeping churches closed. They also sent a letter to L.A.'s mayor warning that extending stay-at-home orders may be unlawful. This while Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has extended their stay-at-home orders for another three weeks, despite declining infections and increasing protests. This is USA Radio News. The Jersey Shore is reopening for Memorial Day, but things aren't quite the same. USA Radio Network's John Hunt is in the area and gives us a peek from his perspective. Beaches are reopening all around the country for Memorial Day weekend, including the Jersey Shore, with the coronavirus still stalking the state and the rest of the USA. Not everything will be the way it used to be. Signs around the area said social distance today starts spreading the news. No arcades, no rides, no concerts or special events, closed playgrounds, capacity limits on beaches, long lines to use the few public bathrooms that will be open, and just takeout at most bars and restaurants with drones flying overhead to help authorities monitor it all. Police and other security will be out on the sand to make sure people keep six feet apart, and lifeguards will blow the whistle on anyone who does not follow the new rules. For USA Radio News, I'm John Hunt. You're listening to USA Radio News. Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the dead doctors don't lie guy. There's no reason why you shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there. And I'm going to give you a free copy of my lecture that tells you exactly how to do it. In fact, after you've lived a long and healthy life, there should be only two documents in your medical chart, a birth certificate and a death certificate. I'm Dr. Wallach with a warning. If you have a four-inch medical chart, if you take prescription drugs for high cholesterol, high blood pressure, arthritis, joint pains, and other health issues, the medical profession is failing you. They're using you for an ATM machine. My free lecture is going to reveal what pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know. There's been groundbreaking research and discoveries on how to effectively treat or eliminate over 900 different diseases naturally. And it's all in my free lecture called Deadly Recipe. So call toll-free 1-855-79-YOUNG. Again, that's toll-free 1-855-79-YOUNG. 1-855-79-YOUNG. Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. When we have Randall and Randall, it gets confusing, but people say I'm confused already. So there you go. So we have a writer here who is really, really desperately seeking to express hatred of UFOs. Emotionally involved, huh? 
Well, no, Quentin Nell's not a writer. He's he's the, in charge of Project Blue Book. Sure, but we have the guy who's writing down these criticisms, explanations. Sure, but but the the point is, in his own book, I mean, his private book, he says no, he he says he doesn't know what it was, and that was after his investigation. I think that some of the skeptics and some of the writers have glommed onto this lunar lander explanation, and I've seen that myself. I just don't buy it. Tony Bagalia has suggested some kind of balloon joke being played on 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 Zamora by students. First, it was stu- high school students who were tired of getting speeding tickets from Zamora. And then it was students at the um, New Mexico Institute of Mining and School of Mining Technology, or whatever the hell the name of it is, there in Socorro, uh, had done it. And they were supposedly famous for creating these great hoaxes and jokes to play on people. But you look at the evidence, you look at what was going on, there's absolutely nothing to support this idea that it was some kind of joke. Uh, Tony got one of the former presidents of the school to say that, uh, yeah, he heard that the students had done it as some kind of joke. And he said, yeah, well, that, that kind of proves it. But Heineck had talked to the guy who was president of the school in 1964. Heineck was there. He talked to the, the head of the school. And the head of the school said he didn't know what it was. Tony has said to me he's talked to a, a student who participated in it, but he won't give me the name. And I haven't talked to the guy. I'd like to, to hear his side of the tale to see what was going on. But there really is no good explanation for what Lonnie Zamora saw. And I know that the skeptical community is kind of locked into the lunar lander, but the documentation just doesn't doesn't support that. It's also right. not uncommon for people to say, I did it. And they're just making up stories. So who knows? We've invited Tony to come on the PowerCast and maybe someday in the next 25 years, he will. And we'll keep it open. I'm, if I'm still here and I'm still semi-coherent, as opposed to whatever I am now, we'll certainly invite him. Speaking of Dr. Heineck, just very briefly, they canceled the Project Blue Book TV show after two years, which I guess is a mixed bag. But the thing about it is I watched, I think, one episode and it didn't impress me too much. What did you think? I liked the first season because they didn't stray too far afield. They did some things that were kind of annoying, but they didn't stray too far afield. I talked to Paul Hynek. I talked to one of the, uh, I think the senior vice president for programming for the A&E networks on the program to get his take on, on what was going on. So I, I, and I looked at it and I could separate the fact from the fiction. And it may be because I was familiar with the cases. I knew what was, where they were going wrong and where, where they were holding close to the Hold to the truth. They went off into the, the the Soviet espionage thing and things like that, and that that was okay. I kind of enjoyed the the first season, but the second season just went completely and totally nuts. Uh, Heineck's get involved in fist fights for crying out loud. There's Russian spies. There's a murder that there murder or two taking place. The general is is waterboarding some witness from Roswell. Roswell has nothing to do with Blue Book because uh, a Blue Book didn't exist at the time. And the only reference to Roswell in the entire Project Blue Book files is a single paragraph in a single newspaper article in another case file where it just says, I think it's the third paragraph in the story, says something to the effect that the officers at Roswell were issued a blistering rebuke for their reporting of capturing a flying saucer. 
That's the only remembrance of Roswell in the Project Blue Book files, and yet they have this whole scenario of witnesses walking the field, picking up the debris, and all kinds of nonsense like that. I got so bored with it, I stopped watching it. When I learned it was canceled, I applauded quite quite a bit. I thought it was a good thing they canceled it because I was afraid that people were going to believe some of that stuff. And, and the reason I, I say that, my mother told me once that George Custer had been promoted to Brigadier General by mistake. Well, if you read the history, you find out it was no mistake. Almost all regular army officers ended up as generals during the Civil War because they were forming so many units and so many were volunteer units, they wanted the regular officers at the very top, the guys who had been trained in the military. And so almost everybody who graduated from West Point prior to uh, the beginning of the Civil War ended up as a general during the war. Where she got that was a movie called They Died With Their Boots On, where a um, letter of reprimand was being written to George Custer, and the, and the adjutant had just written his name on Lieutenant George Custer, and then he was told to uh, write an order promoting the senior brigadier or senior colonel in, the, in this brigade to general, and by mistake, he'd written the uh, address on the piece of paper, and it was covered up, and he wrote the order out, and he sent it off, and it said General Custer was going to be promoted to Brigadier General, so he took over. The point is, she believed he'd been promoted to Brigadier General by mistake, but it's she got it out of a movie. And I was worried that that kind of thing would happen with uh, Project Blue Book. People would see things there and think, that's the way it really happened. Now, the thing that bothers me is Robert Zemeckis, who was executive producer in the project, is somebody who's one of the best film directors we have. Obviously, the story's got away from them. But I would have thought there's enough exploring Dr. Heineck, not just within Project Blue Book, but after he left, to make a credible series. They didn't have to go into the 19th dimension and jump the shark there. Yes, absolutely. And I've said the same thing. I mean, you're talking about alien visitation. What could be more exciting about that? And yet they got to jazz it up. Uh, and, and you see this in movies all the time. They'll take a historical event, which is quite exciting in and of itself. And they've got to throw in all this other ancillary stuff to make it more exciting. Let's put in a few car chases and an explosion. Uh, Heineck was not involved in any car chases. They didn't drive into a... Um, underground base at Dulcie as they did in, in this in this program. I don't know if Heineck ever getting involved in a fist fight in his life. Um, I don't see him as an action hero, but I describe the character during the first season, I say just saw one episode, as trying to make him into an action hero. And those who knew him even slightly would say he was totally the reverse of anything you might regard as an action hero. But you have to remember, the guy who played Heineck in the program was Littlefinger in Game of Thrones. So maybe there was some carryover there. Ladies and gentlemen, I should admit, I have never seen Game of Thrones. I'm quite aware of the program. Don't know that I want to see Game of Thrones, though I'm running out of things to watch right now because a lot of the TV series ended early because of coronavirus and the new seasons will start late. And the only big thing, of course, is the person who played Batwoman will no longer play that role, but who cares? Anyway, and there'll be the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League coming to HBO Max. But nobody cares about that either. But I agree with you just on the surface here that they really probably went in the wrong direction with Project Blue Book. Did you talk to Paul Hynek after the first season about what he thought, what I they did? My thought was when uh, I, I watched a couple of shows, and I thought, what does Hynek family think about this? 
because I was kind of annoyed about the way they were training Heineck. And so I talked to Paul Heineck about it, and he thought it was great. Didn't mind it at all. Maybe and, he didn't mind the fact they wrote him a check. I mean, seriously, I would, you know, you, you do get I money from a, would, a company that's going to use your likeness as the character in a weekly TV show. They obviously have to send a check. I, I, he may have enjoyed the role that he played in that. And, you know, talking to the, um, the senior vice president, I mean, they were very credible guys. In fact, the senior vice president eventually sent me a picture of him with uh, Robert Friend. Robert Friend had been uh, one of the one of the officers in charge of Project Blue Book in 1959, 1960 era. And I didn't know this until later. And I wished I had. Uh, Friend had been one of the Tuskegee Airmen. And I thought, well, there's a there's an interesting tidbit of history, um, and I, I would have loved to talk to him about that those experiences, but I never got a chance to do that because I didn't realize he'd been a Tuskegee Airman. So um, I, I think you know they were all doing Project Blue Book, and, and they didn't really get too far afield. I, I worried about the somewhat lesbian relationship kind of developing between Mimi Hynek and the Soviet spy. I mean, they didn't really go anywhere. Let's stop it right here. We've got more to come with Kevin Randall, J. Randall Murphy, Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. In today's world, violent crime can victimize anyone, anytime. When violent crime confronts you, will you be able to protect yourself and your loved ones? For personal protection training, there's none better than FrontSight, the world's premier firearms training facility near Las Vegas, Nevada. Learn firearm skills from FrontSight's world-class instructors, led by FrontSight's founder and director, Dr. Ignatius Piazza. Whether you're in law enforcement, the military, or a private citizen, after your first firearm training course at FrontSight, you'll leave with skills that surpass 99% of the gun-owning population, guaranteed. And now, you and your family can train at FrontSight free of charge. Yes, free. Go now to FrontSight.com slash radio to secure a $2,000 four-day defensive handgun course. Absolutely free with no catch. Enter F-R-O-N-T-S-I-G-H-T dot com slash radio. Act now before these free courses are all taken. Secure your free four-day course at FrontSight.com slash radio. FrontSight, America's gun training destination. 
This is George Norrie from Coast to Coast AM and History Channel's Ancient Aliens, and we're proud to promote amazing energy, nutrition, and skincare products from Jeunesse. Visit GCNLife.com for products like Luminesce. The Luminesce Anti-Aging Skincare Line restores youthful vitality and radiance to your skin, reducing the appearances of fine lines and wrinkles with stem cell technology. There's also Instantly Ageless, which works within two minutes, reducing under-eye bags, fine lines, wrinkles, and pores. Jeunesse has products to help you with how you look and feel in a very short time. Noble-nominated Dr. Vincent Jampapa has designed several products helping the body perform better. Jeunesse products have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and they're available up to a 25% preferred price discount. See all of the amazing Jeunesse products at GCNLife.com or call toll-free 1-844-443-6637. 1-844-443-6637. I'm here with Scott Uceum, founder of OMG Tax. Tell us how your company helps our listeners out there who have a problem with the IRS. My team of lawyers, enrolled agents, and licensed tax experts remove wage garnishments sometimes in the same day. We even have reduced the total debt some of our clients were required to pay through what is known as an offer in compromise. Can you give us an example of somebody you help? Oh, can I ever? We have taken a $500,000 liability with the IRS. Guess what? The client didn't pay a dime through the representation known as non-collectible status with the government. If you owe the IRS more than $10,000 and you want to see if it's possible to pay a lot less, call OMG Tax right now for a free tax-saving consultation. Call 800-486-8112. 800-486-8112. That's 800-486-8112. Hello, this is John Burroughs, one of the witnesses to the Rendlesham UFO incident. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. There is an emphasis these days in TV fair and movies on showing the LGBTQ community, so that's fine. That's fine. If it is realistic... If it's not, I, I think they're just really, really pandering to an audience, don't you think? Absolutely. They could have removed that. And I don't think Mimi Hynek had quite the role in the Project Blue Book they portrayed in the in the program. The other thing, I mean, Project Blue Book was, a in the beginning, was a project that had a, uh, a classification. You just couldn't wander in the office. And yet you, you see in the program, they've got uh, all kinds of windows and all this stuff on bulletin boards, you can peek in the windows and see all of this stuff and people wandering in and out of the office at, at a whim. Their secretary is a, an airman basic, uh, the lowest lowest ranking person in the entire military, and she is their secretary. I, I'm thinking the secretary for something like that would have would have been an NCO, not not a, an enlisted person of, of that lower rank. So there were lots of problems like that. And the one thing I noticed, and I'm probably one of like four people in the entire country who would have noticed it. This takes place in 1952, allegedly. And there's an Air Force general in there. I always look at the ribbons that the people are wearing in the movies for, and I don't know why, because you know they didn't earn the ribbons. They're just part of the props. But he was wearing an Air Force Commendation Medal. 
I knew that the Air Force Commendation Medal didn't exist in 1952. And I mentioned it to one of these people. And, and in the second season, I noticed he no longer was wearing the Air Force Commendation Medal. But bizarre things that I noticed uh, about it, trivia like that. But they interjected these things. And I, I think you're right, pandering to the audience, whether it's the LGBTQ community or the teenage boys who have to see car chases and explosions or the female community by bringing uh, Mimi Hynek's role in, into the, the forefront. I know later on when Hynek uh, created the Center for UFO Studies that Mimi Hynek became more interested in the UFOs. And during our first archaeological site survey in, the, in Roswell, and I shouldn't say the, the, the debris field, associated with the Roswell crash. Mimi Hynek was there and participated in it, so she became very interested in this. But I think when you get down to it in 1952, in the early 1950s, when all this was taking place and all the information was pretty much classified, Mimi Hynek wouldn't have had much of a role in anything other than knowing that her husband spent some time away from the home in, in investigations. And I don't think he spent that much time away from home either, especially in the early years when the, these things were taking place. Not to mention the chronology from the program is all shot to hell, too. Things that took place long after 1952 show up in prior to 1952. And so it just got kind of weird. I certainly agree with you there that just reading the plot lines where they cared very, very little about what really happened. And they played lip service. You might as well have called this project, no, X-Files, the Y-Files. That was it, the Y-Files. We had the X-Files. This would be the Y-Files? Or the question being why, Kevin Randall? If you, you may not remember, in mid-1970s, I think it was, early, yeah, mid-1970s, Jack Webb, he of uh, Dragnet fame, created a program called Project UFO. And it was basically the same thing. The guys of Project Blue Book were going out and looking at UFO sightings. And um, they didn't jazz it up with any of that stuff. I, I think their, their main thrust was, well, here's a very um, mysterious UFO sighting, and then they were able to solve it and go off and say, well, it was this or that or the other thing. But at least they um, didn't get involved in gunfights and fistfights and uh, waterboarding witnesses and all of that stuff. Uh, the second season just went completely off the rails, and I didn't, I didn't even watch the end, of, the end of the season. I got fed up with it and quit. Well, Jack Webb also, I think, tried to be closer to the facts, just the facts. Even when he did Dragnet, supposedly they were influenced by actual cases. Ripped, not quite ripped from the headlines as it was with Law & Order SVU, but closer to the actual cases. And police officers at the time thought of Dragnet as something really special for the L.A. Police Department. But Jack Webb was, as many of us have learned since, really, really interested in UFOs. And, and we, we need to send a big thank you to him uh, because he is responsible for getting the Project Blue Book files microfilmed. He paid for it because he was going to do the program and he wanted access to the files. They had since been declassified. They had been at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base for a period of time. And then they'd been sent to the National Archives. And he paid the cost of having the, the uh, films 
the, the, the files microfilmed, which meant I could buy copies of the rolls of the film. There were 96 rolls, I think it was. And at the time, it was $10 a roll. And as I was doing research on specific cases, I would order the roll. So I eventually ended up with the entire Project Blue Book files on microfilm. And now most of that is on, um, is, you can find it online, uh, most of the files online now. Uh, I, I've noticed some gaps in there that um, cases that are are missing from the microfilm, but but I've got, uh, I mean from from the online files that I've got on microfilm, but but he was responsible for having those microfilms, so uh, that was kind of a nice thing for him to do for all of us. It turns out. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, I know when I was going through the microfilm online, it was uh, it was um, the Blue Book archives is what I used to use when I wanted it. And I'm, and now I think you can get it from the black vault. But um, one of the things I noticed is that there were briefings for people uh, about the UFO phenomena prior to the projects themselves taking place, where they would go into some of the history, including some of the, even the idea of ancient astronauts. And yet in there, there was no mention at all of Roswell. There was of Kenneth Arnold, which happened right around the same time, but nothing about Roswell. Why is that, do you think? Well, first of all, let me say that there are files that precede the Arnold sighting. I mean, case files that precede Arnold in the Project Blue Book files. Uh, Project Sign, which was the first investigation, began officially in January of 1948 after – Twining ordered that in his September 23rd letter from 1947, ordered the creation of the project. But there was an unofficial project that preceded that, and it began in uh, December of 1946. And a guy named uh, Colonel Howard McCoy was responsible for that. And McCoy had been investigating these unusual aerial phenomena since the Second World War when he was involved in the um, investigations of the Foo Fighters. So we've, we've got that, and some of the files. Uh, very limited number of files prior to to the Arnold sighting. But Arnold, of course, is there because that was one of the first ones they investigated. I think Roswell, well, let me me back up here. Roswell uh, isn't in the files, as as we've said, but there are other crash cases in the files, which turned out to be hoaxes or misidentifications or things that clearly are not alien spacecraft. Uh, I think of one from Shreveport, Louisiana in in July, I think it's July 7th, 1947. And it was a disc-shaped object that was about 18 inches in diameter, I think, and it it crashed into a street. And it had some electronic parts on it, and it was recovered by the Army. Um, J. Edgar Hoover got annoyed because the Army wouldn't let let the FBI have it for examination. But it was also an admitted hoax. But there's a case file on it in in the Project Blue, uh, Project Blue Book files. There's a case on that hoax. Roswell, I think, is not there because it was classified much higher than that. Because everybody agrees something fell at Roswell. Uh, we don't all agree on exactly what it was. But had it been an actual alien spacecraft that fell at Roswell, they would have known that. In 1947, they would have, from the wreckage and from the retrieval of the bodies, they would have known that this was not some kind of an earthly craft. And I think that information would have been way too controversial to release at the time. And so since Project Blue Book um, 
I think, had very little to do with top secret materials. It, it had secret materials and what became classified materials, or I mean, confidential materials. But it didn't have any top secret materials. And I think that the classification removed Roswell from consideration. I think it was classified extremely high based on what they had retrieved. And you look at the, um, the timing, July 8th, I think it is, 1947, you have the Roswell Army Airfield announcing they had captured a flying saucer. Three hours later, Ramey, General Roger Ramey, at the next higher headquarters, 8th Air Force in Fort Worth, says, no, no, it's a weather balloon. Uh, the reporters can't find any information. Jesse Marcel, who is involved and in, in mentioned in the Roswell article, isn't in Roswell. He's in Fort Worth, but the reporters don't know that. They can't find Mac Brazel because he's out on his ranch 75 miles away from, from Roswell, and they don't know where to find him. And then you've got a general officer saying, well, you know, here's the debris. It's a weather balloon. You know, there's nothing to see here. Go home. Before you go home, ladies and gentlemen, don't go home. Just listen to this and come back with our guest, Kevin Randall. With Gene and Randall, you're in the Paracast. for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items and entails T-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast jumbo tote bag, all sorts of T-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, you know, great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children. Stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. You go to store.theparacast.com. Stop by and take a shopping tour. Hi, Peter Vaccaro for ParanormalDate.com. Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up for free at ParanormalDate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together. People who are interested in the strange, the unusual, mysteries, ghosts, UFOs, and the afterlife, and so much more. ParanormalDate.com was developed for you, people seeking a viable alternative to the other dating services. You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com, and if you decide you like it and want to connect with people, use the code GEORGE for a substantial discount. Mark Rawlings, president of ParanormalDate.com, says so many people hunger to share their experiences about the paranormal, the unexplainable, or the afterlife, and so much more, and this is the source for them to meet and share that common interest. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com, ParanormalDate.com, and use the code GEORGE if you decide to connect with someone you like. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Maybe to stop confusing the Randalls, we'll call J. Randall Murphy. Murphy? 
you know, give him a kind of a military treatment. Then we'll have Kevin Randall. We'll call him just Randall. And Gene, they call me things we can't say. There's Kevin and there's Randall. We could go with that. <laughs> well, I know <laughs> in the days we had Chris O'Brien as co-host, we'd get Chris Rutkowski, and then we'd have a really, really good time. Kevin Randall, let us continue here. And, of course, we're looking at the various things he put together for the best of Project Blue Book. When we get back to where we were, we're now we're to July 9th, the next day after Roger Ramey's announced it's a weather balloon. The next day, you have uh, any number of reports, and I think it's Associated Press and newspapers all around the country. The Army and Navy today moved to suppress stories of flying saucers whizzing through the atmosphere. Why suddenly on July 9th, 1947, did they suddenly care? Up to that point, there was a lot of speculation from military personnel about what the flying saucers were. There were newspaper articles all over the country about flying saucers. It was a very exciting topic for people. But suddenly on July 9th, the military moved to suppress the stories. Why did they do that? Well, I think it's because they had one and they didn't want that information to get out. It just kind of gives you an idea why there is no real mention of the Roswell case in the Project Blue Book files is it was too highly classified and too controversial at the time. So it went somewhere else. And we and we can point to other cases. We know that the Air Force gathered information on it, but they didn't go anywhere. And then in 1969, it was General Bolander saying that the really hot cases, or not the really hot, the, the cases that affected national security were not part of the Blue Book system. And Hynek said that the really hot cases, he knew the really hot cases went somewhere else, didn't go to Project Blue Book. So we have a we have the testimony of the people involved. We have the Air Force regulations that, that tell us that sort of thing. And so we know that some of the information didn't make it to Project Blue Book because of the national security implications of it. That makes perfect sense. Go, it's what they called, I think, when I was reading through it, the silence from above uh, when people in Blue Book and Sign, Grudge, so on, were trying to get information about what was going on above them. They would just get stonewalled. There, there would just be nothing. Well, in the military, of course, when you have classified materials, there's what's called a need to know. And if you ask a question and it's outside your purview, you have no need to know. They don't tell you that stuff. You know, you want to keep a you want to keep a secret or a top secret or whatever it is, you limit it to the number of people that have access to it. So let's say you're granted a top secret clearance, as I was, and stuff is going on. Well, then you get into code words. And so you have something top secret code word. And that limits, again, the number of people who have access to it. And they can apply a second code word to it that limits it even more. So once you get to top secret, you begin adding code words and things like that that limit the access to it. And just because you have a top secret clearance doesn't mean you have a need to know everything anyway. So you may uh, have an interest in something and you ask a question and you have no need to know and they don't bother to tell you. And I, that makes perfect sense to me. You know, Ben Franklin, I th said that three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead, which is quite true. He also <laughs> said that a single gunship sucks, but I don't I don't think that's quite right. While we were in flight school, we were told that. Ben Franklin once said that a single gunship sucks. They always flew in pairs, at least pairs. Just a little trivia to, to brighten your day. Well, it seems to me like where this ceiling was, was right at Hoyt S. Vandenberg. Right there. Like, he knew. And then, of course, he ends up in, which I know that you don't believe are genuine, uh, the MJ-12 documents, but it seems like, okay, even if MJ-12 itself is some kind of fiction, there was some higher level 
of officialdom where they did know. And he seems to be like right at that borderline because that's where they sent up the estimate of the situation to. And he said, no, sorry. And then it wasn't long after that that they started to, uh, like you say, bring in the Robertson panel and the CIA. And from there, it all went downhill. As the Air Force chief of staff, he he would have been access to everything going on. So, yes, I I think the the person who knew, the highest ranking person that knew in 1947, well, it went up through um, Twining, Nathan Twining at at, um, Wright Field. He was the Mm -hmm. commanding general of the Air Material Command at the time. So it went up through him to uh, the Air Force chief of staff. And I say the Air Force at the time in 1947, at that point in 47, the army was broken into uh, Army Ground Forces, Army Air Forces. So there were two two chiefs of staff, one of Army Air Forces, one of Army Ground Forces. And then I, Eisenhower as the chief of staff of the army. So you had this bizarre chain of command. And what it would, how it would have worked in 1947 is the stuff would have gone to Wright Ramey, who was the commanding general of the 8th Air Force, which was part of the Strategic Air Command. And that would have gone to um, General Kenny, who was the chief of the Strategic, strategic Air Command. But the research facilities were at uh, Wright Field. And that would have gone to Nathan Twining. So these guys would have all known about that. When you look at the MJ-12 document, for example, the the list of the 13 or the 12 people who were involved in that, there are names that are missing that should be there. If you're looking at who was in the right positions at the right time, there there are names that are not on that list that makes perfect sense. And General Exxon, General Arthur Exxon, who was at Wright Field in 1947 and who uh, eventually became the commander at uh, Wright Field, Patterson Air Force Base, told me and he told Don Schmidt, probably told Tom Carey as well, that um, one of the people who was directly involved in that committee that you kind of alluded to was a guy named Stuart Symington. And when you look at the chain of command, the first civilian you encounter in the chain of command for the Air Forces was Stuart Symington, because at the time he was the undersecretary of war for air which means he was the equivalent to the Secretary of the Air Force. And um, so he worked directly under the Secretary of uh, War for Air. He would have been in the chain of command. He would have been involved in that thing based on the other names that appear on that. So that's one of the names that should have been on there that was not. And that's another reason I find the MJ-12 document hard to believe. Right, but we don't find it hard to believe that there was some other higher uh, group of people who did know something. And uh, so have you been able to... It might not have been as well organized as a single entity. It may have been broken up into um, your field of expertise is propulsion. So you get the propulsion aspect of it, but you don't know the other aspects of it. You work on the propulsion or you work on the metallurgy. So it may not have been a single single committee like that organizing the whole thing until you get to the very top. And then it probably would have only been one or two guys as the ultimate director who had been reporting up up to the president. Yeah, as high as I could figure out where they went was the Office of Scientific Intelligence, which became Office of Scientific Research. And so that kind of makes sense if they were if they'd found this stuff or got something and really wanted to figure out what it was, they'd need the scientists for that, not just military people. Absolutely. They would need scientists. But what I'm saying is the way uh, the MJ-12 committee is supposedly set up is all the committee members know all the, the various aspects of it. And I don't think that's the way it would have worked. I think there would have been 
there wouldn't have been a, a a big committee. It would know all aspects of it in that sense. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I completely agree with you there. I, I get what you're saying for sure. Um, so with Project Blue Book, then, uh, they had three main conclusions when they were shutting it down. One was that no unidentified flying object reported and investigated by the Air Force has ever given an indication of threat to national security. Now, that's really convenient if all the ones that are a threat to national security are going somewhere else. But how about a couple of examples from uh, the best of Project Blue Book that you think kind of make that statement false? Well, one of the things I'd looked at at one point was Belt, Montana, because that... uh, the, the UFO shut down uh, a flight of missiles from outside, and that that threatens national security right there. When you look at um, the Washington Nationals, for example, these were the sightings that took place in July of 1952 over Washington, D.C., which, which by the way, ended up in the uh, newspaper banner headline that I just think is right out of a science fiction movie. The newspaper banner headline says, Saucers Swarm Over Capital. We're going to have something swarm over this show. And when it leaves, we'll be right back with Gene and Randall and Kevin. You're in the Paracast. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's The Coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream, a dream that turns out to be a nightmare because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Find out more at rockoids.com. That's rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. You know what's really smart? Wash your hands frequently, practice social distancing, and stay home if told to do so. You know what's really dumb? To ignore your immune system. Right now, more than ever, your health depends on a strong immune system. The experts at Immunicorp will give you their seven-step guide to immunity for life, free. Why? Because we want you to be smart and healthy. Simply call 800-446-3063 or click immunityforlife.com. Immunocorp has been producing the world's leading immune system products for more than two decades. To get your free seven-step guide to immunity for life, call 800-446-3063. 800-446-3063. Be smart. Don't ignore your immune system. Your life depends on it. Call 800-446-3063 or click immunityforlife.com. Immunityforlife.com. Has your body ever gone low blood sugar feeling weak, shaky, knowing you better eat something fast? 
We all know high blood sugar can lead to many metabolic problems. At GCNteam.com, we have a healthy blood sugar pack, focusing on the structure and function of stable blood sugar. Find us at GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. Nothing feels worse than unstable blood sugar. Call 877-878-4203. That's 877-878-4203. Would you like to get back that full head of hair from years past? Introducing Reveal from GCNLife.com. Beverly Hills dermatologist Dr. Nathan Newman invented Reveal, which contains polypeptides with natural botanicals and no parabens, sulfates, silicones, or dyes for a salon-quality hair growth product. Reveal. Here's Dr. Newman. I have treated a lot of patients who lose their hair and they lose their confidence. We've created a unique set of polypeptides, which we call HPT6. The HPT6 contains the polypeptides from six different plants. The scalp infusion treatment should be used on wet or dry scalp. The Reveal Hair Care System is designed to be used for men and women alike. Get Reveal at GCNLife.com with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So try Reveal today at GCNLife.com or 844-443-6637. Plus a discount up to 25% off for Reveal at GCNLife.com or 844-443-6637. Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to Earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right, we cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. That headline in Washington, that's probably the classic, the best UFO headline ever, don't you think? Oh, I just love it. But it, it, it kind of gives you an idea of what was going on in Washington, D.C. And here, is, here, here are sightings that kind of, kind of impacted on national security because the UFOs are right over Washington, D.C. Um, it got the attention of the president, President Truman oh, yeah. at the time. Well, I mean, flying in restricted airspace and they're scrambling jets after them. I mean, no, secu- no, that's not the least bit a security concern, right? Yeah, absolutely. I actually had an opportunity. There was the second night. Ed, Ed Ruppel talks about this in his book uh, about unidentified flying objects. And he mentions that Dewey Fournay and Al Chop had been in the uh, the radar room the second night, the second Saturday night where the, the objects showed up. I, did, I actually had an opportunity to interview both of them, again, in the mid-1990s. So I, I was able to bring that information into the book as well, what they told me, as opposed to what you get from the, some of the skeptics. And, well, it was nothing but a temperature inversion. And both of them were very clear that the radar operators were highly skilled, knew what they were talking about, wouldn't be fooled by weather phenomenon on on the radar. And the objects um, would seem to disappear when the fighters showed up. So they got the scrambled fighters into the area looking for the UFOs. The the UFOs would disappear from the scope. So once the uh, fighters left the area, the UFOs reappeared. So the question becomes, did they go somewhere else? Did they turn on their cloaking devices? Uh, What exactly did they do so that they wouldn't be seen by the the fighters? But the other thing you have to remember is there were 
radars at three separate locations that sometimes painted the objects together. I mean, painted them all in a similar location. So you not it's not a malfunction of one radar or it's seeing some kind of weather phenomenon. It's all three radars. And in one case, the onboard radars for the fighter jets locked onto the objects. So you've got some very good information from from them. But that whole series of sightings certainly was an aspect of, of uh, affecting national security. When you mentioned the, the idea that, well, they had to find out if there was a threat to national security, during the Condon Committee, when they were doing the investigation, one of the researchers was at um, Maelstrom Air Force Base. And that was where the UFO shut down the whole flight of missiles. That's a na- that's a national security issue, and he was in there talking to. I think his name was Chase Lewis. Could have been Lewis Chase. <laughs> he was the guy from the RB forty seven sighting, the the command pilot there. He's now at Belt, Montana, and he's a UFO officer. And I always get his name confused, whether it's Lewis Chase or Chase Lewis. Probably Lewis Chase. I don't know. Anyway, he he's there with the scientist who was sent in because he had a security clearance. The scientist had a security clearance. And and he's the scientist is told, no, we can't give you that information. It's a matter of national security. So when the content committee says, well, we've seen nothing, we see nothing in the UFO sightings that affect national security, that's a bald-faced lie because one of their investigators is right there and he was told by the UFO officer, I can't tell you that. Yeah, I can't yeah, give you yeah. that information. Perfect, perfect. Okay, so their second reason. There has been no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as unidentified represent technological developments or principles beyond the range of present-day scientific knowledge. If you look at the photographic cases of disc-shaped objects hovering without any airfoils on them, that right there is a technological advancement that we cannot do. Yeah, we have helicopters, but you've got a spinning rotor blade, um, which can hover. And we've got uh, what the um, Harrier, I guess, can hover. So we've got some jets that can hover. What's the, um, the, the, the Marine one? Osprey, the Osprey. It's got mm-hmm. those big, mm-hmm. huge propellers that they, you know, they can maneuver the, the wings. So they rotate the wing, yeah. Those yeah, are pretty weird. If you've got a picture of a disc-shaped object like in McMinnville, Oregon, um, which I, I really don't bother with in the book because uh, I look at the Rhodes photograph, the Montana movie. Um, I look at the Heflin photographs, but you look at all, all those sorts of things. You're looking at objects that are circular. They have no means, visible means of holding them up. It's, they're operating in some other way of, of maintaining their ability to hover. So that would be a technological advantage that they didn't, that, that we couldn't uh, match. During the Washington National sightings, again, at one point, one of the objects was, was tracked at 7,000 7, miles an hour. I'm not sure that we can even do that in today's environment in the atmosphere, uh, moving that fast because you've got all the, the problems with friction. If you remember the uh, SR-71, which I think could do like Mach 3, the aircraft would expand because it would heat up due to the friction. It would uh, land, it would be like glowing red because of all the, the friction and the heating that went on. There's no evidence that that really happens to the UFO. So you've got, um, you've got that technological advancement to, to look at as well. And then the, the way they can accelerate is, is far advanced of anything that we can do. Go from basically a hover to several hundred miles an hour in a split second um, would basically crush any 
human on board the uh, on board the craft. Or tear the craft itself apart, right? I mean, and there, there, there again, we're looking at the 52 case and the the kind of jets that they sent up then, they were called F-94s. They're kind of primitive by our standards. But back in those days, they were some of the best that they had. Oh, that was the best they had. I'm not sure they had a uh, – uh, I'm not sure they could do faster than the speed of sound. They may no. well have been. They didn't get that far until they got to the Super Saber, which was transonic. But the thing is, is they sent they would send it up, these jets up, like you say. And at one point, one of their pilots did lock on with the radar, like you're saying, same time as they've got the lock on from the ground radars. And the military and civilian people are watching this. And he's saying, OK, what do I do? And then all of a sudden, these objects, which to him looked like these glowing orbs, just suddenly streak off in the distance like they were shot out of a cannon or something. I don't know what can even do that today. I think we've moved to the point where some of our technology is almost that good. Almost that good. But you also have to remember that it doesn't, um, you know, it, our eye, the way our eyes work sometimes limit that as well. We cannot really see... You, you can if you if you watch a, a firearm discharged, you can sometimes see the bullet leave the barrel of the gun. It's kind of a black streak or something like that. And I think most most weapons fire when they fire the the bullets go supersonic, uh, with the exception of twenty two shorts, which is why assassins use twenty two shorts because it doesn't uh, go supersonic. So there's not the um, the crack that you hear from the bullet. Well, isn't that an interesting tidbit? But I mean, st- <laughs> but still, I mean, you know, the point is, is, is you've got this instant acceleration. Yes. Off, off away in another direction by something that doesn't have any sort of aerodynamic features. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, today, maybe they could do that with holograms or something. But, uh, you know, an actual craft that can do it. I, I, I have my doubts I'll, and definitely not back then. We don't have anything that can do do that thing. I think I, I think we can. Co- I think we're to the point where we can get close to doing that. But then again, you it's going to be a, an aircraft. It's not going to be something without any kind of airfoil or anything like that. So there goes reason number two. We're going to have a lot more reasons in our final two segments with Kevin D. Randall and Gene and Randall. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. I started fighting the IRS over 40 years ago when they tried to seize my mother's house. I sued the IRS and won. I beat the IRS then, and I've been beating them ever since. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I've helped thousands of people deal with tax problems they thought might never be solved. I can help you too. If you owe taxes you can't pay, don't wait another day. There's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com. Do you want to give you and your loved ones premium nutrition right now? Hi, I'm Jamel Bookaboo from teamgaday.com and the GCN Longevity Health Team. Get your premium nutrition formulated by world-renowned naturopathic doctor, Dr. Joel Wallach at Wholesale or also become a distributor and earn income while supporting this broadcast. Go to teamgaday.com via the shopping cart or contact form, and I'll get back to you with support personally. That's teamgaday.com with longevity. Teamgaday.com.
USA Radio News with Wendy King. President Trump says he wants Americans to go back to church. He's declared them to be essential. The governors need to do the right thing and allow these very important essential places of faith to open right now for this weekend. If they don't do it, I will override the governors. In America, we need more prayer, not less. Some governors say the president can't order them to open churches, but the Justice Department has already been warning states they cannot let businesses reopen while keeping churches closed. They also sent a letter to L.A.'s mayor warning that extending stay-at-home orders may be unlawful. This, while Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has extended their stay-at-home orders for another three weeks, despite declining infections and increasing protests. This is USA Radio News. The Jersey Shore is reopening for Memorial Day, but things aren't quite the same. USA Radio Network's John Hunt is in the area and gives us a peek from his perspective. Beaches are reopening all around the country for Memorial Day weekend, including the Jersey Shore, with the coronavirus still stalking the state and the rest of the USA. Not everything will be the way it used to be. Signs around the area said social distance today starts spreading the news. No arcades, no rides, no concerts or special events, closed playgrounds, capacity limits on beaches, long lines to use the few public bathrooms that will be open, and just takeout at most bars and restaurants with drones flying overhead to help authorities monitor it all. Police and other security will be out on the sand to make sure people keep six feet apart, and lifeguards will blow the whistle on anyone who does not follow the new rules. For USA Radio News, I'm John Hunt. You're listening to USA Radio News. In today's world, violent crime can victimize anyone, anytime. When violent crime confronts you, will you be able to protect yourself and your loved ones? For personal protection training, there's none better than FrontSight, the world's premier firearms training facility near Las Vegas, Nevada. Learn firearm skills from FrontSight's world-class instructors, led by FrontSight's founder and director, Dr. Ignatius Piazza. Whether you're in law enforcement, the military, or a private citizen, after your first firearm training course at FrontSight, you'll leave with skills that surpass 99% of the gun-owning population, guaranteed. And now, you and your family can train at FrontSight free of charge. Yes, free. Go now to frontsite.com slash radio to secure a $2,000 four-day defensive handgun course. Absolutely free with no catch. Enter F-R-O-N-T-S-I-G-H-T dot com slash radio. Act now before these free courses are all taken. Secure your free four-day course at frontsite.com slash radio. Frontsite, America's gun training destination. Marie D. Jones, the author of This Book is from the Future, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. So, Randall, I caught you in the middle of a statement, as I always do, because that's my purpose in life. It's a conspiracy against you, me and the folks from Area 51. Go ahead, please. Yeah, my whole life's a conspiracy. Uh, So we're going through these ridiculous questions for why they shut down Project Blue Book. And the third one was there has been no evidence indicating the sightings categorized as unidentified are extraterrestrial vehicles. Okay, so, I mean, what kind of evidence are we supposed to have other than by the process of elimination there, Kevin? Uh, The problem with that is 
if we had the absolute proof, we'd be having a different discussion today. But we we can look at the number of sightings where the craft are seen to uh, perform in an extraordinary fashion that outstrips any of our technology. You can get to the extraterrestrial by eliminating the terrestrial explanations. Is there anything in the terrestrial inventory that could do the things that the UFOs are observed doing? And the answer is no. And the other answer is, we're talking about 1969, so the answer is definitely no back then. We, we moved toward the point where we can get close to that in today's environment, but, but not, not then. And there are cases of landing, the landing trace cases where the objects are seen on the ground. They leave landing traces. And I think it was Teb Phillips had said at one point that if you tell him the shape of the landing gear, he could tell you the kind of craft that made it. Now, if we're talking about something that is a figment of the imagination, you're going to get no consistency in that sort of thing. Or if you're talking about hoaxes, you're still going to get no consistency in it. But if you can put together a catalog of the landing traces, which is what Ted Phillips was doing, and you can look at the landing trace and say the kind of craft seen involved with this would have looked like this, he was able to predict the type of craft. Well, then you've, you've moved a little bit closer to the realm of the extraterrestrial. When you add in the occupant reports, which, of course, they didn't bother with, then, then you've moved it directly into the extraterrestrial. If you, you know, Lonnie Zamora saw two beings, uh, didn't give much in the way of description of those, but he saw two beings outside the craft. So who were these people? Who, was, who were the, the beings? And when you move to that arena, then you've moved closer to the extraterrestrial, but the content committee wasn't interested in looking at that. What the content committee was geared to do, and it was set out in a letter by Robert Hitler, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Hitler to Robert Lowe, who was the, the contact of the, uh, the content committee, was, here's what we want you to find. The Air Force did a good job. There is no threat to national security, and nothing of scientific value can be learned by continuing a study of UFOs. Content committee ended its report, and that's exactly what they found. Um, nothing like getting your conclusions drawn prior to beginning your investigation. <laughs> yeah. It makes it a lot simpler that way. Yeah, no kidding. It sounds like the U.S. Congress can do things like that, prejudge your conclusions. But certainly, uh, yeah. we kind of sort of expected that at the beginning of the Condon Report, those few of us who were semi-alive at that time. And some of us were completely alive at that time and well aware of what was going on. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you guys were both in it before I was. I was just a young person back in the in the late 50s. I was born in 58, so I learned about it from reading about it, not hearing about it live so much. But still, I mean, one of my first books was the report on unidentified flying objects by Ruppelt, and it's still today, I think, one of the must-reads out there. It's amazing. Since we're talking about Project Blue Book, Kevin Randall, what do you think that Captain Ruppelt would have loved to have known that you now Roswell. that you know right now? Roswell. If you go to the Project Blue Book files, there's a report a briefing written by Ruppelt in '52, I think it was, and he's talking about the evidence, and he mentions no crash retrievals. He actually says there's been no crashes, there's been no retrieval of, of crash materials. So he clearly didn't know about Roswell. And I think if he was alive today, he'd be very interested in that. Well, they didn't give him the time, right? Like the, after the Robertson panel, they were saying that they would even go so far as to ridicule their own pilots. And Ruppelt, I believe he was an aviator. He you know, served in the armed forces. He was a, he was a bombardier. 
Yeah. I mean, he, he took great exception to that. It wasn't long after that he was transferred out. So you ever find out whether or not he actually voluntarily requested to be moved out or they just kind of relocated him or it was some kind of mutual agreed to thing? I can tell you, if I had been Rupelt and I was recalled to active duty for the Korean War, I'd have been really annoyed if I was placed in charge of the UFO investigation. You know, I mean, when after 9-11, I worked very hard to get in the National Guard to get into the fight. That's the whole point of getting back into the military organization was get into the fight. And if I'd been left behind, I'd have been very annoyed. And I, I, I cannot believe that he wasn't very annoyed about being left behind. It may be that he was told to revitalize the UFO project, which he did. And we get some very good case studies in the in 1952 based on his research and what he was doing at the time. But then he moved on to a new assignment. And it may be that he was doing too good of a job and they wanted to move him into a different assignment. Um, I don't know why he moved out. I, I know that if it had been me, I would have been trying to get out of that assignment so I could get into the fight. And uh, that, But that's just me as mm -hmm. a former military person. I want to get into the fight. If, if, if we're at war, I want to get into the fight. After Rupelt, there was uh, Hardin, Gregory, Friend, and Quintanilla. So out of all of those, who do you think was the best? Anti-saucer. They're all anti-saucer. I think Friend was probably the best because uh, he wasn't quite as rabid as some of the others. Quintanella was completely rabid. He hated Hynek. I think Gregory was just rabidly anti-saucer and very annoyed about the whole thing. Friend, I think, I think Friend had a more neutral look at the whole the whole thing. Um, looking at the correspondence of of that, I think he was also trying to move. Um, Blue Book, get rid of Blue Book as well. He didn't, I don't think he saw it as a function that the Air Force should be doing. I think he saw it as something that should have been in a more scientific arena. The Air Force shouldn't have been involved in the investigations the way they were. True, the Air Force mission is to protect our, our skies from intruders, and UFOs by definition would be intruder. But I think the investigation would have been better handled by private science organizations such as NASA, who, by the way, didn't want a thing to do with UFOs. Um, but I think that would have been a better better fit for uh, an investigation with a, a liaison between the the military and uh, the civilian organization uh, working working hand in hand to do the, the investigations. Here's an outrageous question here. With the current interest in UFOs and the material coming forth from the Navy, today, forgetting the civilian to the Stars Academy, which I prefer to forget for, for obvious reasons, do you think there's some kind of government role that could be played that would be a counterpart of Project Blue Book then that would serve our society today? I think it needs to be a civilian organization. I think it needs to be a scientific organization to look at it. And and um, to, to do that, you need all kinds of funding. And the funding is just simply not available to do that sort of thing. And nobody wants to take it on, I think, because of the way things are handled. I think the Navy kind of fell into this thing. But that was kind of organized... If I understand everything, and leaving out the two to Stars Academy, but Harry Reid, the senator from Nevada, was working in concert with Robert Bigelow to provide them with information that would help him in his drive to, I guess, create a uh, some kind of interstellar craft. 
or at least interplanetary craft in today's environment. But you look at that stuff. I had thought that it, it might have been part of a program to move us toward disclosure. But now looking at it as it exists today, it looks like it's moved us further away from disclosure because um, we've got just little bits and pieces of the stuff. And you go back and you look at the um, descriptions provided by the Navy pilots, for example. They're talking about an object that's, that is uh, suitcase-sized. Well, what kind of interstellar craft is suitcase-sized, we're crying out loud. So crying out loud, we've got to do this break and have one more segment left with Kevin Randall. Gene and Randall, you're in. The Paracast. You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon you'll need a plan and place to survive. Forget bunkers. You're not a live underground gopher. You need survivalist camps, the ultimate fully functional off-the-grid mobile survival bug outhouse that's well-equipped and custom-built to outlast any other RV or trailer. Bold statement, you bet. See them now at survivalistcamps.com. That's survivalistcamps.com. Trust your family's survival to survivalistcamps.com. Would you like to get back that full head of hair from years past? Now, there is Reveal. Beverly Hills celebrity dermatologist Dr. Nathan Newman took nearly a decade to develop Reveal from natural botanicals to return to a full-body head of hair. Reveal for men and women with a 30-day money-back guarantee at GCNLife.com or toll-free 844-443-6637. 844-443-6637. Reveal at GCNLife.com. Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to Veterans 
different nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. Now with orders to stay at home, public health concerns, the reality of illness due to pathogens and viruses, your health is at an all-time high risk. That's why it's critical to take a proactive approach to boost your immune system. You can with new nano-colloidal silver from AmeriCare. Our patented process with tiny silver particles, one one-hundredth the size of a red blood cell, allows for maximum body absorption. AmeriCare's nano-colloidal silver effectively disinfects your body internally, attacking pathogens and viruses while supercharging your immune system. Colloidal silver is antibacterial and antiviral. Simply put, it prohibits bacterial respiration, suffocating viral cells, preventing the virus from replicating. And now, due to public health concern, AmeriCare is authorized to offer our lowest and best price ever, around a dollar a day. But supplies are limited. Purchase nano-colloidal silver now at ImmuneSupportNow.com. That's ImmuneSupportNow.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Supplies are limited. Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Suitcase size, that was an interesting thing to bring up, Kevin Randall. What if we're talking about drones here of some sort? I mean, it doesn't make sense unless E.T. has gotten smaller. They're using that thing they use on the TV show Legends of Tomorrow where the guy wears the suit and it becomes very small. So maybe E.T. has made itself small? I was going to say it's probably more like Men in Black where we have the little tiny E.T. creatures running around in <laughs> New York City or whatever it is. We have an entire uh, galaxy running around in a necklace thingy. Yes, that's true. It was a nice kitty. I almost said something else. <laughs> anyway, uh, you guys can figure where my mind went on that one. The The thing is, we do not understand exactly how their uh, digital equipment works, how it captures the data. There's all the possibilities of drones. People are flying drones all over the place. We had the problem with drones in Colorado at the beginning of the year. And I, I did a, a program about what we had learned about the drones, and I noticed that's all kind of gone away now. You know, you, you begin to look at that and think, well, maybe they were trying to move us away from disclosure in some fashion. I don't know. I just don't like the way they're piecemealing the information out. I don't like all the fights that are going on about it. I know John Greenwald has had some uh, trouble with uh, getting FOIA documents and learning the exact credentials of some of the people involved in gathering the data. So I, I just, it's just not enough information for us to make any really credible determinations about what's happening. The Air Force did come out just recently and confirmed that those leaked videos were genuine, that they did come from the Air Force. You know, I got real pictures of flying saucers. These are real photographs. The image in them might not be real, but the <laughs> photographs are real. And, yeah. uh, you know, so when you say something like that, well, these are real videotapes. Yeah, great. That's wonderful. What about the object? Exactly. Is it, real? Yeah. Is it some kind of artifact created by the way the digital images are captured? Is it a, a drone that somebody flew into the area because they could? 
Uh, is it Soviet spying on our naval maneuvers using some kind of a drone? I mean, the fact that they say, well, the videos are real just really doesn't tell us much of anything. Well, I mean, at least it tells us that that Elizondo didn't hoax them, but it still only gets us halfway there. Well, I don't think that there was any 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 question that he had hoaxed them. No, he didn't hoax them. He may have released the videos inappropriately, but the videos are legitimate videos that came from the Navy. You know, it just yeah. doesn't mean what they what they had in them were extraterrestrial craft. Okay, so they when they're closing down Blue Book, those were the three reasons that they gave, and then they say something very interesting: the Air Force will continue to investigate all sightings of unusual aerial phenomena over the United States, which are reported to it. The initial contact for this purpose is through the Project Blue Book Information Office. Which is part of here, they say, Safoe, Washington, D.C., Safoe, Secretary of the Air Force Office of Information. They don't say they're not going to investigate them anymore. They say they are going to investigate them. But if you call the Air Force after Blue Book closed down, you'd call the Air Force and say you had a sighting. They would advise you, well, if you feel threatened by it, call the local law enforcement. We don't do that anymore. But you also have to look at it from another point of view. The Air Force mission is to protect our skies. So if there's some kind of intruder, they are required by their mission to intercept it and see what it is. The other thing you have to remember is in 1957, and the documentation, again, in Project Blue Book supports this, something started called Project Moondust. And I found four cases in the Project Blue Book files labeled Moondust. They're really crappy cases, but they're in the Project Blue Book's files and they're labeled Moondust. So there was a UFO component to Moondust. Moondust was to recover returning space debris of foreign manufacturer or unknown origin. Unknown origin being, of course, UFOs. And we've got any number of cases through the Moondust that tells us that they were investigating UFO sightings. Moondust supposedly ended in 1985 when the name was compromised. And what happened there was once the name was compromised, they changed the name. I think it was Robert Todd got a letter from the Air Force saying the name is uh, properly classified and unreleasable. So you you can't have it, which is telling them the project still exists. They just changed the name. And now we and then we learn. Then we learned yeah. in 2000, 2004, they began another type, type of investigation. And nobody's really looking at what the Army and the Air, uh, the Navy might be doing in the way of UFO investigation as well. Maybe there's some kind of projects they've been involved in that uh, hasn't seen the light of day. Are you saying the Army and the Navy or the Army and the Air Force since the Navy? Army and the Navy. We know that the Air Force is involved. Sure. And, and now we've learned the Navy is involved, but we don't know what their missions they may have had prior to this latest announcements. Does it make sense, though, that the best approach is to funnel all this to private industry? The scientific Pardon? arena, more than private industry, but but scientific arena. And I would look to NASA. I would think NASA would be the piece, place to do it, or SETI. SETI, you know, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. There it is in the name. We're searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. Oh, flying saucers? No, not so much. We're looking for radio signals. How the hell do you know that, A, a civilization that is developed technologically still using radio as its means of communication? Listen, Kevin Mandel, it's subspace radio. That's what it is. It's subspace radio. We know that. Of course, we have no idea what subspace radio is, except somehow it's related to warp drive. I forget the Star Trek lexicon. People out there are going to criticize me now. You don't know your Star Trek, okay? Well, I will watch, if I can afford it, and CBS All Access, the Strange New Worlds 
prequel to Star Trek because oh, don't well, bother. About it. They've screwed up Star Trek. They don't understand Star Trek. When they brought in J.J. Abrams to reboot it, they, they screwed it up. They didn't understand the philosophy behind Star Trek. I'm sure Gene Roddenberry was spinning in his grave on the moon, or I think he's or is he in orbit. Those shows are much better, I think, the ones on CBS All Access that I have seen. I think the movies are all perfectly awful, but the first one was less awful than the others, just my opinion. Yeah, I got a real life-size picture of a military unit. Well, here's a guy who did not graduate from the academy, but we're going to make him captain of a starship. That's going to happen. (laughs) I have very, very, very little respect for J.J. Abrams. I mean, I've seen the work he's done. He did Alias on TV, which was fun until it jumped the shark. He did the Star Wars film, a couple of them that weren't very good because they just basically were retreads. And then he brings back Star Trek, and he messes that up. Not that they shouldn't have come up with a brand new, younger crew, but if you did that and still followed the traditional Star Trek legends rather than go back and create an alternate reality, the Kelvin reality. I got no problem with them doing that, but they didn't understand the philosophy. Absolutely not. I understand what, what the philosophy behind Star Trek was. They went and screwed it up and made it into just another action-adventure film. And they made Captain Kirk a total goofball, which I thought yes. was really bad because well, I think Chris Pine Chris did. Pine does a great William Shatner imitation, but more so in the Wonder Woman movie. Watch Wonder Woman and tell me if Chris Pine didn't come out of the William Shatner school of acting. Kevin Randall, tell our listeners where we can find more of your stuff. Amazon.com's got the books. You can find my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, which means if you go there, it'll link to the books. There's a lot of articles up there about uh, all kinds of stuff from the Curse of Oak Island to the Curse of the Bermuda Triangle, a lot of UFO stuff. And some of the things I've talked about here, there's more information there. And of course, the book is uh, the best of Project Blue Book, which uh, gives another take on what the Air Force could have done had they been doing it right. If you're interested in Roswell, I think Roswell in the 21st century will give you a really good clue about where it stands today, the investigation stands today. And if you buy the books and you want to put a review up on Amazon, that helps immensely because it'll tell other people about the books and it'll help them decide whether or not it's something they want to read. It gets the word out about from our point of view as opposed to the skeptical side of it. You can find us on Twitter if you look for The Paracast. Look for The Paracast on Facebook. Look for theparacast.shop. For branded merchandise, official branded merchandise for the Paracast, look for the Paracast.plus. The Paracast Plus is a special service where we offer a version of this show free of the network ads, enhanced audio, and the After the Paracast podcast. And you really never know what's going to happen with After the Paracast. Last week we had an extended interview with the one and only Nick Redfern, and you never know, maybe we'll hear from Kevin Randall on After the Paracast real soon now, too, because it just never ends here. For more information on subscribing to the Paracast Plus, go to theparacast.plus. Theparacast.plus, prices are now up to 40% or more lower. Theparacast.plus. Kevin Randall, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. And thanks for the opportunity to discuss UFOs with you. Gene Steinberg is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated.
Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.